0: Welcome to the Long Take Review. I'm your host, Jen Subchakshay Bankard, and I'm here with my friends, she said. Men like my first co-host can be found drifting like seaweed all over the world. They're not particularly bad men, but they're not good men either. It's P.T. McNiff. How's it going, P.T.?
1: Something extremely unpleasant was about to happen. I was sure of that. Something sinister and cruel, but I had to see it now.
0: Hello, Jen. <laughs> I'm I'm well. How are you? Oh, that was great! Oh, now now there's just like a, a sense of dread washing over me. And my next co-host had a small, frail body. His face was freckled, and he wore spectacles with thick lenses. It's Greg. Cass. Sorry, apparently this destroyed PT, and I'm laughing now. uh How's it going, Greg? Help!
2: Help! <laughs> Help! <laughs> Hello. It's, I, it's good to be here. I am sure that only about a third of our listeners could hear my brilliant reference to Poison, the fourth of our shorts we're talking about tonight. Jed, what are we talking about tonight?
0: <laughs> oh, Yeah, that probably made sense to maybe two people uh, listening to this at this point, <laughs> um, in which we've lost everyone else. Well, it's fall movie season. I'm so glad you asked, Greg, uh, which means we will have not one but two eyes on the Oscar race. Uh, We're kicking off next week with our first big contender of the season, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which we are all very excited for. So just a quick reminder, if you don't want to miss those episodes when they drop, please follow the Long Take Review wherever you get your podcasts. So we host the feed through Substack. You could subscribe there, but you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I believe Greg uses Overcasts.
1: I also use Overcast, but people like Pocket Casts. Uh, does uh, Stitcher still exist? I know there's a network file. Anyway, wherever you listen, go go find us.
0: And you may have figured out, if you've seen them already, uh, based on our little interlude at the beginning, uh, we are here today to review four new short films by Wes Anderson, uh, and they are all adapted from short stories by Roald Dahl, uh, hence, hence the like long-winded sort of droll <laughs> descriptions that we used at the beginning uh they are all available now on netflix um so if you listen to our asteroid city review over the summer you probably know that we're all big wes anderson fans uh and greg on a previous episode was just so sad uh saying that we probably wouldn't have a chance to do a separate review of these shorts guess what greg we're here <laughs> we're doing it um <laughs> he just he just did a like little fist bump wave if you're mm-hmm. listening to us for the first time We'll have a spoiler free section designed for those who have not yet seen uh, these four short films. and with a very clear alert, we will shift into spoiler mode. and actually today we're gonna share our rankings since there are four of them. That's enough for us to rank apparently. <laughs> so we' are gonna we're gonna we're gonna do some rankings and just talk about them kind of in a more spoiler fashion after a certain point. So so if you are intrigued by our shenanigans in these first few minutes, go to Netflix, watch the episodes, uh, and come back and listen to the whole episode, or if you just want to kind of listen to us, rec- see what we recommend about these, and and then go watch them. That is up to you. But first, we're going to do a quick movie news check-in. And unfortunately, the most important news right now is bad news, uh, for the actor strike. I know that we were all kind of optimistic when the writers made their deal and everything seemed like it was looking up. Maybe this is, thing is finally over. Actors just need to make their deal. Uh, and that. so the WGA struck a deal on September 27th, but the news this week is that negotiations between SAG-AFTRA and the amptp hopefully i got that right uh the studios um it has been suspended i believe is the word that they use not good um la times even said the sides remain too divided and so they just decided to stop negotiating altogether um and from what i could gather it sounded like this big sticking point were the residuals so the additional revenue that actors would get from streaming shows in particular that they appear in and that's apparently like a really hard thing to to find a compromise on. So have either of you sort of been following this or want to add anything? I mean,
1: the big sort of, I guess, spin that I saw from the two sides was the producers slash studios saying, well, the actors are turning down the deal that the directors and writers took. Uh, so, you know, what are we going to do about that? And the actors are saying they came back with an offer that's lower in terms of you know, the actual amount of money that actors will be able to make, it's lower than their their initial offer, like the studio's initial offer. So, so the studios are just taking things off the table for them. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it sounds like there, there were aspects of the writer's strike and what they were negotiating in terms of you know, uh, writer's rooms and and in, in, uh, ensuring that there were you know, people uh, credited to different things and how those credits would work. That were unique to the writer's uh, place. So they were sort of more okay, I guess, with the residuals being where they ended up, whereas the actors don't have exactly the same uh, concerns. And so the residuals are more prominent. So they're holding their ground a little bit, uh, a little bit more around that.
2: The spin out today, and while we uh, are sneaking our recording in a little early, we should say we are recording on the 12th of October in case this story changes somehow over the weekend. Um, but, that's a good call. <laughs> uh, The story today is that SAG is saying they were just asking for 2% of streaming revenues, and that's what got rejected. So we'll, you know, have to see what that ends up looking like. But it sure looks bad in, in the wider world right now when you... T- and the studios denied it. The only other tidbit I saw this week that I loved is that the AMPTP is looking to change their name. And essentially that means they've gotten so much bad press this week and over the last few months that they are like, hey, let's rebrand. So as we move forward, eventually, hopefully... They don't remember it was us. So uh, I still think that means the actors have the upper hand. Uh, certainly public opinion seems to be on their side. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure the the producers come back soon.
0: For sure. And yeah, hopefully hopefully we can recover from this and, and get back on track. Uh unless serious news, unless you're a Swifty, that is. Uh, the Taylor's is all over my entertainment news feed. The ta- Taylor Swift eras the concert film. Of the Eras tour. and I didn't bother looking up what the official title of the movie is actually, but apparently that premiered this week at the Grove uh, at the AMC theater at the Grove and the LA the big headline from the LA Times was that the Grove shut down. <laughs> like they were, and it's a huge mall. It's <laughs> my understanding. I've been there in a long time, but uh, and so that was a big deal. And so you know, movie podcasts have sort of been talking about this and joking about it that this is a total takeover of movie theaters for a while. What do, the two, what do the two of you think? Do you feel like it's going to be just Is this beneficial to regular business for movie theaters in some way Or is this kind of just going to be a weird phenomenon that comes and goes? Uh, both uh, I think that <laughs>
1: it's a weird phenomenon that will come and go. There's maybe There are likely going to be people who you know, are just into seeing this And it's not like, I'm back at the movie theaters. I'm mm-hmm. returning. This is back in my Rotation as a an activity I'm going to do. But that's okay. Like that's, that's fine. That's good revenue for the theaters, especially if uh, you know, there's, there's a little bit of downtime anyway in the fall. I know we're, happy here on the podcast to hype up uh, Oscar season, but these are not necessarily big blockbuster movies that come out uh, during during the, the, the fall. So it seems like that'll be good, that there may be a movie that's driving a lot of revenue in between the late summer releases and the holiday, you know, Thanksgiving into Christmas uh, holiday season, money-generating uh, mm-hmm. movies. And you I will know, just say, and- sorry, Greg, that it's called Taylor Swift colon The Eras Tour. So you were, you were basically there. You were
2: basically there.
0: (laughs) I just lacked the confidence and the conviction.
2: I just want to say, you know, I go to the movies way more than it's healthy and I still can't get over how much Barbie drove traffic and particularly like teenager traffic. So this huge demographic came to the movies in mostly in August that is not usually around the theater. And so I think it's a great thing to bring them back to the theater and, you know, I, we should be seeing Dune next week. Sorry, I'm not going to time machine in this time to say we, to we, uh, we should be seeing Dune next week. And so without that blockbuster, it's looking like the Marvels is going to be a little soft, uh, just that the you know, I have high hopes. I love Captain Marvel, but it doesn't look like it's driving the. Uh, it's not writing the Marvel ship. Let's call it that. And so I think uh this is a really good way to keep the doors open, sell a whole lot of popcorn and and fuel us, uh like PT said, till the big Christmas release of Aquaman two, even Aquaer. Uh, it really drives back theaters and saves us all.
1: And also, you know, the fact that the Era's tour movie is apparently two hours and 48 minutes means that all these new cinema goers will be re- nice and primed for the three and a half hours of <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon that they'll be going to the week after they see this.
0: Or, yeah, and Napoleon.
1: <laughs> and, yeah. And, and for the four hour Napoleon cut that will be on Apple TV Plus.
0: <laughs> well, they can, they can get up and get snacks during that. You can pause that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, it's a whole other thing to be to be in the theater. Um, I actually overheard. Oh, who was it? I suppose I think somebody on probably on Little Gold Men or. Oh, no, no, no. It was um Variety. Uh, someone on that podcast uh, was saying, what's the extra half hour? Like Oppenheimer was three hours. Why are we complaining about it? <laughs> it was really funny. Um uh, but the other thing, I think it was Matt Bellamy on the town was was saying from a box office perspective and a business perspective that like this sort of tells a, confirms what we already knew that movies now that make a lot of money aren't necessarily a certain type of movie, but it's a movie that's an event, right? That somehow mm. is in the disc in the in the ether is sort of like a thing you got to go to. So um, and, and you know whether that was Barbenheimer or or this it's like those are two very i think barbie movie and even if the same demographics are interested in them barbie movie and taylor swift movie i feel like are very different things (laughs) just just intrinsically um and so that's really interesting to, to think that it doesn't actually matter what the content is it's more the the attitude towards the content as an event
1: it's similar to what you know has shifted in TV ratings where you know the live TV things are sporting events maybe you know a a major you know political debate or state of the union speech uh so, you know to, to maybe a, a shrinking degree the academy awards but those are the drivers uh and even like a 60 minutes where it's like well this is news that's happening now i'm not going to go and watch this in five or six days i'm not going to build up to to binge my 60 minutes episodes so uh so yeah that there's there's something about like this has to be done now uh is is what drives tv this has to be done together in a theater is seems to be what's driving movie theater attendance
2: all right um, so i I play a personal game every year where I try to see as far down the top grossing movies of the year as I can. Uh, I think I've seen the top 19 at the moment, although I put an asterisk on Sound of Freedom. You cheat, I cheat, so I don't see Sound of Freedom. Uh, So I am pretty positive that despite bearing her no ill will... And also never having heard a single one of her songs, I will be going to see the Taylor Swift movie and uh, I will report back on how that goes. But my question related to that is any estimates? How high do you think it's going to go into the top grossing films of the year? We uh, just we have Barbie at the top now. Barbie is the queen followed by Mario. Um, Do you think it can touch those numbers or do you think it'll be somewhere kind of, you know, mid mid single digits teens? What are you thinking?
1: I think it gets to the top 10. Uh, I'm i I'm reasonably confident it will get to the top 10. Uh, you know, I, I I will say under Oppenheimer, but I'm not confident about that. Mm. Like it might surpass Oppenheimer if, well, if I, it, people really love it and they go I see it multiple times.
0: The big question will be, will it have legs, right? Because I think a lot of the top grocers, it's not just when it opens, it's huge, but it's like, can it keep rolling throughout a longer period of time? So if, I think if it's like, Everyone go- everyone who wants to go goes in like two, three weeks, then it's probably not going to break a billion. But if it's like people are seeing it through the holiday season, if it's still around, <laughs> then I think it could. So we'll see. I don't know. Is that is that us making an official the long take review bet? I guess <laughs> this is a uh, tiny version of the summer movie wager.
2: This isn't a limited release at all, right? So it could very well be there. Uh, I saw AV Club reported today which songs were in the film, and the ones that are missing, it was guessed that there could be like a Christmas re-release with, you know, five more songs. So if they Uh, are planning something like that, and, you know, I would never bet against the savviness of Taylor Swift and her business people, then... I think we could be looking at this film long into January, at least, because there's not a lot of competition coming. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, um, I'm going to be taking my mom. She she's been a Taylor Swift fan before it was cool. And mm-hmm. uh, so so I'm going to go take her. Um, I'm, I'm pretty like Taylor Swift neutral. Like I'll listen if you if you start playing Taylor Swift, I won't complain. But I'm not like, you know, I didn't go see the try to go see the concert. I wasn't like clamoring for tickets Mm. for that or anything like that. So we'll see. Yeah. All all the Um,
1: reports were that the concert is absolutely incredible. So if it does a good job of capturing it, capturing that, yeah. It's going to be a good time if you, even if you are neutral, uh, you know, neutral to very positive uh, on Taylor Swift. Uh, I am curious to hear if Greg ends up leaving, saying, "Yes, I legitimately had never heard any of those songs because I always think I don't really know Taylor Swift songs." And then someone will be mm. like, "What about this, 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 and this?" And I'll be You're like, like oh, "Oh yeah, that wasn't a commercial, or that wasn't a meme, or I did, you know, get a snippet of that in something." So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether you know will this be the big, the next big concert movie that everyone's excited about.
0: Mm-hmm. As long as Greg doesn't repeat the scuttlebutt incident we're good i think
2: <laughs> i i was gonna go with the uh the dean from community saying like i hope this doesn't awaken anything in me and <laughs> i'll just come out as a full uh swifty with right. ten, you get friendship uh, bra-
0: bracelets yeah, up your arm
2: on each arm all over just <laughs> yeah i'll somehow have grown bangs no. while i'm in there maybe it maybe it'll happen so uh, every th- every nickname, Taylor Swift
1: though, <laughs> every ZenCaster nickname screen thing will be Greg's version. Uh, in parentheses at the end,
0: <laughs> um. cannot wait. Okay, so I think we're ready to talk about <laughs> something very different: short films by Wes Anderson. <laughs> it's quite a pivot. <laughs> um, so let's start. Just start with the short take. So, what was your general reaction to this set of short films? And anything you want to throw in about the way in which you watch them or experience them? Because I do think there is a little bit of variation potentially here and that might impact how you perceive them.
1: I'll start by saying, I think they're a delight. I thought they were wonderful. I had a really good time with them. Uh, I didn't get to uh, enjoy and experience the sort of rollout of them, which was, uh, you know, there, there had been, it had been sort of on the calendar sort of pegged that, uh, the the and now I have to make sure I have the a wonderful story. I always think of it as wonderful world, but it's the wonderful story of Henry Sugar uh, was going to be on Netflix. Uh, it was going to come out by Wes Anderson. And then it's shifted to this, oh, it's a series of short films from different stories. And they came out one per day for four days in a row. And just out of uh, calendar reasons, uh, through no uh, ill will, uh, Uh, towards the project I didn't I I didn't get to watch it until they were all out and so uh, against Jen's explicit recommendation I just watched all of them in uh, I I took a break between a couple of them just to you know like do do something else but I did watch them all into within like one three hour window Uh, but that didn't. It didn't seem like a problem to me. I liked the way they felt interconnected. Uh, it we we could discuss. It seems to me like this was initially designed to be a single sort of theatrical release of an hour and forty five minutes, with you know these stories kind of uh, existing in order. But I liked that they were separate, and you know the, it was a very effective use of the kind of. You know, theatrical artifice that Wes Anderson has really liked, you know, going certainly all the way back to Rushmore, uh, but was even more, you know, maybe even more prominent in Asteroid City. And uh, I thought that this this presentation of this is how Wes Anderson using his craft tells you some bedtime stories from uh, Roald Dahl was, uh, again, a, a delight, a pleasant delight.
2: I absolutely love these. Uh, these are so so far up my alley. You just you can't even see the street from where they we are sitting with these. And um, I uh, I did the full rollout, and and PT recounted it exactly right. And I remember around Asteroid City, there was just like this rumor, like and there's another one coming. There's I I already finished another film. And it was like, what? Like a second Wes Anderson movie this year? Like my dreams cannot possibly come true. And then when it turned into four more, I was like, what is happening? I was full blown, uh, you know, the Swifty equivalent of Wes Anderson, a Westie. Uh, and uh, a Wessie? Wessie. You don't want to put a T in it. Wessie. <laughs> um, uh, and so I could not have been more excited. Um, I think uh listeners will recall if they listen to our rankings I'm not super super high on Fantastic Mr Fox I often feel like I've missed on that one that people get something from it that I don't get um for some reason um but I thought this was a perfect marriage of material and artist and the way he put it together um just was wonderful there's a really good New York Times uh profile on him um where they Uh, I believe it was in there. They disclosed that uh, the Royal doll estate had essentially shown him all these other stories. And Wes Anderson marked these ones like a long time ago, like, Oh, I want to do something with those, but I, he hadn't been able to crack it and figure out exactly what he would do. Um, And I was every morning logging in and finding the, the new short. And I do want to talk a little bit about how, Weird it was that they were actually kind of hard to find on Netflix. Um, the The first one when I logged in was recommended. So, um, you know, the day it came out, I I think I saw on Letterboxd it, it it started on its way up the the rankings, and so I found the thumbnail for the uh, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar very quickly. But then on the second day it like didn't recommend the Swan to me. It didn't know. Like if you searched Wes Anderson, a bunch of not Wes Anderson movies come up first. It's like, you must like Owen Wilson. Here's some Owen Wilson. Here's Yumi and Dupree. That must be what you want. You're like, no. And, uh, (laughs) And then like the third day, I'm like, I don't know what the third one's called. Like I haven't paid enough attention until I kind of again use Letterboxd to figure out what it was. And then I was like, oh, okay, got it. Uh I found it there. So very interesting to me that they weren't packaged in like one title card as like the the Royal Doll films or Wes Anderson's Royal Doll films that you have still have to navigate to each separately. Um, but I loved everything about these. Um, Rafe Fines is one of my favorite Wes Anderson actors, and to have him back was such a gift. Um, and I was not expecting how good, uh, but should have, how good Dev Patel and Richard Richard Ayoade and Sir Ben Kingsley all were just incredible. So um, I will be the gushing fanboy for most of tonight's episode. I have very little to critique about these because I think they're really fun. What about all you, right. Jen?
0: I'm with you. I think they were, they were really enjoyable. And I would say my favorite aspect of it was how much it made me think about literary storytelling and fictional narrative versus cinematic storytelling. And just how it like really kind of clicked something in my brain where I was kind of like, Oh, like what is it? What, how is it different to try to translate or uh, not just adapt a short story to a film but just the the modes that you're in in each of those mediums I think it, for me that was probably the most enjoyable thing plus the stories themselves are like really gripping and I think having only really read Roald Dahl's what's con- considered his children's fiction I feel like this I was not prepared for these stories <laughs> in terms of just the type of content. Um, you know, so, so I think you, you mentioned fantastic, fantastic Mr. Fox. And I think we're slipping now naturally into the recommendation algorithm, but like there are definitely visual elements of this that I would, I would associate with fantastic Mr. Fox, but in terms of the tone and kind of the type of story, I feel like they're very different, um, but not, but and we'll talk about it, but like, but I can see the through line. Like I recognize them as viral doll but not necessarily like Fantastic Mr. Fox or like James and the Giant Peach or like all those classics that we sort of associate with him. All right. So yeah, as I said, recommendation algorithm. So if people are listening, they haven't checked these out yet. And I do want to circle back, Greg, to your question about the way that they're packaged and presented, because I do think that was weird to me as well. And I want to talk a little bit more later about about that. So we'll put a pin in that for now. But, But for those listening who are wondering whether or not they would want to check these out, you know, because the recommendation algorithm acknowledges that not everything is for everyone. So are we really only saying these are for Wes Anderson super fans or like what other people might enjoy these if they just casually check them out?
2: I always use my wife, uh, my darling, wonderful. I couldn't live without her wife as a barometer <laughs> on such things because she gave up uh, on a date when I took her to Life Aquatic with Steve Zisu, she gave up on Wes Anderson and was bored out of her skull and never has uh, been won over. I convinced her to go see French Dispatch because she loves the New Yorker and she she sees the artistry, she appreciates it, but is not that cool. Um, and found I found that she was kind of doing the like peeking out the side of her eye at these. I think these work a little bit um for people who maybe tire of the Wes Anderson shtick. Um I think the runtime helps that you know you're only checking in for a brief moment unless you sit down and do them all in a row. Uh, uh So I think that helps. And I, I don't know. I, I listened to some podcasters today that were like, uh, I hate Wes Anderson and I hate him even more now, but a bunch of them, I thought would, were saying things along the lines of like, you know, the kind of annoying parts of him just kind of work in this format. And for whatever reason, I think because, you know, they're so small, you don't get overwhelmed and you can see the kind of, um, the the theatricality on the surface and it, it all works when there's like no pretending there's a real life version in this. Right. So it's kind of like if you saw asteroid city and you hated all the parts that were actually out in the desert, but liked the other bits, then this is for you. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, people seem to be in or out on Wes Anderson at this point. And only I would say, if you're kind of wavering, you like some, you don't like others. Will these probably win you back over in my opinion.
1: That's very much in line with what my answer was going to be, which is, I think the old, it it isn't, it's sort of the, the anti-recommendation algorithm is if you are really, really anti Wes Anderson and you do not like him and just, he grinds your gears with the way he does stuff. There's nothing in here that that isn't that, uh, and maybe as Greg is saying, the bite-sized component to it, the fact that there is, you know, the, the way it's inherently structured, I think to to add to Jen's point earlier about how it's it's an interesting sort of rumination or or melding of. Uh, the, the literary storytelling and uh, cinematic storytelling, but also has that theatrical storytelling mm. in between of this is, you know, it's a it's a film of what looks like a theater production of, uh, you know, a story very faithfully uh, performed. But, you know, if that sounds like, oh, my God, that sounds awful. Like, I can't believe Wes Anderson's doing stuff like that. I don't know if you're going to like it, but I also don't know if there are that many people that are so, so against it. Uh, and I think, yeah, even if you are a little, you're like, I kind of like Wes Anderson, but I'm a little strung out of a little worn, worn down. Uh, you know, I think the idea of what if the Max Fisher players did a bunch of Roald Dahl stories uh, is something that might win, you know, get them interested and say like, you're never going to commit more than 35 minutes to, uh, to watching it. If you, uh, you know, if you don't like it, then it's, you know, at most one uh, episode of a sitcom, one kind of extended episode of a sitcom, and and you're out. Uh, and if you like it, there's a couple more even shorter bits that you could watch. So yeah, I think I think people, anyone listening, should give it a try, unless they really, really don't like Wes Anderson to such a degree that I can't imagine you have gotten this far. You would have gotten past our glowing praise of the short take to get <laughs> to this point. You would have been so <laughs> mad you 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 slammed right. off the the episode.
0: That's fair. I would also just add that if you are a fan of audio books, I feel mm. like this is probably up your alley because most of the dialogue is sort of literary exposition and and, and sound, like if you closed your eyes, not that you should, right? Like, because the, the visual stuff is spectacular and really fun. But if you closed your eyes, it would basically be very close to the audiobook version of these stories. And so I think, yeah, if, I would say if, if you're a... If you read the New Yorker, you're a book nerd, right? Like you like short story, like the form of the short story appeals to you. I'd say that. And even if you didn't think of yourself as a Wes Anderson person, I feel like Mm. there's a lot here. Potentially, how, how about will, um,
2: if you listen to podcasts on 1.5 speed? This is for you because oh, that's just how fast yeah. they're talking. <laughs> Sorry, that's go ahead. It's like they, do.
1: they do go fast. <laughs> um, I, I, I will just note because I feel like it should be noted, and maybe before we get to the spoiler mode, uh, uh it, it's, it's it's a fact in the room. I also think that there are people who understandably are like, I'm out on Roald Dahl, uh, he has a, a history with uh, anti Semitic comments, uh, that are. Uh, you know, not okay. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, you're like oh like was it really that bad then you look and you're like maybe it wasn't maybe it was it was it was that bad it did it, it like, he kept going uh and it wasn't it wasn't great so uh, i i do understand like i have people uh in my life who are contemporary you know, peers who have children who are like i loved i loved him and i loved his stories and i'll never read them to my kids because mm-hmm. uh of these you know the, these details that you know not necessarily just came out but people weren't really aware of until i, I think it became a bigger deal with netflix bought the rights to the stories and announced like we're Wes Anderson's going to do one and we're going to do a version of the Matilda musical and and blah, blah, blah. And people were like, what about this thing, this stuff? And there was a sort of a Roald Dahl's family says they're real sorry about all those things he said about Jewish people <laughs> yeah. back in the eighties. Like he didn't, they don't think he meant it. He thought he might've just been joshing, uh, which, you know, is up to everyone how, how much or how little that, that, uh, you know, should affect their ability to enjoy These productions, but I have absolutely no problem with folks that are like, no, that's enough. I'm out. I can't. I can't do that.
0: Do you feel like these shorts engage with the figure that that discourse at all or acknowledge it or show an awareness of it? Uh, I I will say
1: no, except that there is. Uh, to keep it vague there there is an element of one story that is like a character kind of in a in a frustration going to a place of prejudice uh in a in a heated moment that seems like i haven't read it but seems like it's in the original story that's not like it's been added in or or you know altering what's going on uh though i i do wonder if the very end note of that story is a little bit different than uh mm. than the actual like written version uh but beyond that i don't think so but i'm willing when we get into spoiler mode maybe to be shown where where it is because that would be interesting if if it was if it was in there or if it was just kind of a that is unfortunate let's just deal with the text death of the author and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let's let's deal with these you know pleasant stories or <laughs> pleasant's not the right word but these these enjoyable stories
0: all right i think we're ready to go to spoiler mode because was about to say something i'm like mm, maybe that's a spoiler so i think that that's usually a sign that we're ready. So, if you've not seen these four short films and you have now you are now interested, right? Go watch them, pause, go watch them, come back, rejoin us. Uh, but yeah, after this, there'll be spoilers galore. <laughs> spoilers uh <laughs> so with, <laughs> sorry, i'm just i'm just trying it out because we had, we had talked about adding spoiler. the word spoilers to that <laughs> spoiler <laughs> alert um <laughs> but uh the spoiler i was actually going to say and we'll start we'll randomly start here it's not really a good place to start but because i was about to say it before we went into spoiler mode the <laughs> death of the author in films that literally resurrect the author with name. <laughs> Through, through an actor's
1: performance yes yeah, the, the the author is is a is a genial seeming character in a weird little shed uh yeah. is yeah but but sure yeah
0: and that might have been a spoiler because I feel like I didn't necessarily realize that Roald Doll was going but though I'm not surprised at all but I was like when he when Ray is sitting in the chair with his his cable knit sweater which I'm like oh Greg's loving this <laughs> mm. uh <laughs> um that I was like, oh, he's actually in this. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. This is Wes Anderson. Of course, he would build in a layer and make that part of part of the story. So what's a good segue from that? I guess what do what do we think? Because like a lot of Wes Anderson material, this has the f- multiple frames, right? And is, you know, there's Roald Doll telling the story. And then even within the story, there's especially in Henry Sugar, like there's stories within stories. Do we feel like it has a specific purpose here? Or in general, if you want to take it in a different direction, like what what are these what are these shorts actually telling us of anything?
2: Um, I think the the first one in particular. So Henry Sugar has a frame narrative built very clearly into it. So I think I could see why Wes Anderson would be attracted to that one. And it kind of made sense. And I would almost treat that separately from the others because um, it's so deliberate in setting up. Here's Roald Dahl in his writing shed. And it was as soon as I saw that opening, I was like, there's no way this isn't like a myth- meticulous recreation and as soon as you google pictures right. of that writing shed it's like the things on the desk are exactly right the weird little like cardboard thing he puts on his lap the space here like it's all exactly <laughs> there like I, I i don't think they were in the museum but they could have been in the museum uh because i believe the writer's shed is is a museum piece now um and then the way it goes to henry sugar and then there's a frame narrative about the uh the kind of ben kingsley dev patel piece of the story like it and then within that ben kingsley tells a story about his history within that all of that i think um was much clearer than it was in asteroid city or even in french dispatch because it was the kind of uh nesting narrative we're all used to I think if you hated Asteroid City, it's because you jumped back out of that so often um, that it, you know, you'd have the the little interludes where we would jump back and be with the actors again, you know, on a train talking in the middle of this story. And then then it even broke it a few times, which I want to talk about that, too, because I think they break it here on purpose. And I'm like, why do you do this? Because it's so deliberate. (laughs) Um, So I think with that it worked really really well and i think again that's the piece where i i think as i said in the algorithm if um if you really hated asteroid city i think because it's much more straightforward it'll make sense here the little interludes in the other ones i think um are much more just like Roald doll pops in and does a thing and then pops back out so they they're even less obtrusive than than it is in the first one
1: and i and i feel like those pop-ins in the the three shorter shorts are why it's it makes a lot of sense that these were constructed to all be presented together because i feel like if you were just like oh there's i've always liked the story the swan i'm gonna watch this and then suddenly like three quarters of the way through there's like 10-second bit where <laughs> ray finds is there and is talking to you you're just like what is happening like what's going on so i think that that setup of the nesting narratives and the storytelling which you know to me screamed grand budapest uh the most because it was like you know we, we kept nesting yeah. in and i think that grand budapest was the sort of clearest about all of that and that it's it's the the ways in which the french dispatch and asteroid city uh have messed with it were in sort of intentionally trying to erase some lines potentially at the cost of losing viewers that are just like, what is even going on? Uh, but I think that, you know, the nesting is so clear in this, which is partly, I think to, to deal with the um, uh, space issue of there's only so much time in a short film. And because it's so clear in the outside text that is being adapted that, that, that was already there uh, that, uh, yeah, I think that it's, it is setting it up for, uh, for the viewers to be able to follow it. I don't I don't really know if it's making, to go kind of go back, I guess, to the, is this saying something about Roald Dahl or maybe about the controversies around him? Like I don't think that it is. I actually wasn't 100% certain when I started watching it because I'm not familiar with the story. I was like, oh, maybe the story begins with an author writing it. And especially because it gets more and more nested. It was really only when we got to the the other short stories that I was like, oh, that's clearly supposed to just be him, and then like Greg realized, oh, this is this is an actual space that space heater clicking on at random times, with that the little orange light is uh, is you know based on the reality of the author and not just a fun little detail Wes Anderson came up with on his own.
0: So yeah, the question of are these intended to be watched in a particular order? I think is really interesting because to me Henry Sugar not only it's the longest one. We'll talk later about if it's, the, you know, we'll, we'll debate whether it's the best one, but it is the longest. And I think it, you know, it's the one that people kind of gravitate towards, at least in terms of critics that I've listened to. But I feel like in it is sort of the thesis of the whole project where it's like, because the frame narrative is all about, and I've recorded this exactly as this other person told me, right? There's something mm. about like verisimilitude and accuracy and like sort of like in a almost like a journalistic way of like. Because I think it was like the Deb Patel's character was Zed Zed J- Chatterjee, <laughs> like it's like should be in the Hall of Fame of Wes Anderson names. It was just great. I'm like Zed <laughs> Z, that's perfect. Uh, but but he says something like, you know, because I learned a, a form of shorthand when I was in medical school, I was able to get down exactly every single word he told me, right? And, mm. and and there and I feel like there's references like that kind of sprinkled throughout, at least more more in the Henry Sugar one than in other ones, but I feel like there's something in that in terms of his whole project of like oh I'm going to capture Roll Dahl's writing HUD exactly as it was and uh, and then we get all these notes about like what's what what was accurate and not accurate and then there's a moment in Henry Sugar where he's like well if I were writing this to be more literary right I would have mm-hmm. this ending but this is the ending that actually happened um, which I don't want your opinion doesn't actually seem that much more like authentic even if it is what actually happened <laughs> It still seems very very story-like to me um so it's, it's one of those like it's too too crazy to be true sort of things so what may, maybe is the point but yeah anyway that was a lot of rambling but but i feel like there's something that the the getting capturing things exactly as they were is a part of the project
1: which i think it, it interacts in a very interesting way with all the sort of stagecraft elements mm-hmm. to it where there is like a stage hand that is very like present in all of the scenes, setting up props, like looking into the camera as they're sort of handing over something that the character is going to need. Like say they say, oh you know, I, I go to the other room to get something, but instead, you know, the stagehand comes in and hands it to them. Or you know moves around. <laughs> or they hand the... something back
0: when they're like, get rid right. of this."
1: Yeah, hmm. they're they're interacting with them. So there's, you know, that that also has this sort of, well, this is all fake because this is not You know, we're not in any sort of verite presentation of it. So we're back in that kind of Brechtian mode of we're we're tearing down the illusion of the, the, uh, you know, calling out the artifice to get rid of the illusion that the artifice is real. But it also is sort of like, well, this is how it actually happens is, you know, like, no, I don't like I, the performer, don't go to some other room and do it. A person who works in the theater comes over and hands it to me and then they go and close the door. Like that's the real deal. And so that in a way almost makes it feel like these stories are being told even more accurately, even though everything's made up. Like, you know, these, none of these are actually nonfiction stories. These are all fictional short stories. But yeah, so it's like the, to, in a way almost removing the artifice is in one way is building up the artifice in another
2: um my read on asteroid city because i just want to talk about that old movie uh after we reviewed it i went and saw the props our listeners should know i was in the phone booth i was uh i held uh, a bunch of crap anyway uh so uh but when i read asteroid city i interpreted a lot of that and at some point on text pt said this film is either brilliant or completely insane and i still haven't made up my mind which is true uh if it really had something deep in it But I interpreted Asteroid City to be that there is a kind of philosophical truth, and all layers of that film are trying to help its characters understand what a truth is, and it's impossible to get to the truth because the artifice is always in the way. You can never completely get rid of the artifice to be pure verisimilitude and that to me is why there's a, a really weird moment in asteroid city where all of a sudden brian cranston is in the innermost he travels from the outermost shell to the innermost and says like am i not in this scene and scarlett johansson's like no like get out of here and and it's like so bizarre and it's like why did and and there are moments like that here where they get handed the wrong prop and they kind of fuddle with it and they like show that they are not actually getting there and then you think about how meticulous wes anderson is in his planning and it's like you know you're planning the 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 fake aspects the mess ups. of of the artifice and it's like you're you're signaling what it is so i think jen that, that was my way of saying i think it's the same thing here except it's less a like philosophical truth and it is all mm. about like the record and so uh i will keep a mystery about what my rankings are but in the swan for instance if you wanted to talk about <laughs> the swan there is a moment where um rupert friend as the narrator reveals that the little boy character is him and he's standing over the tracks and he says these tracks right here i'm here mm and it's it's like fake cuz you've just been walking through the set and you've been seeing the the wheat pop open indoors but it's like very important to that narrator to say this right here is truth within this um, and then later when it's the the bit about the, the swan, the titular swan, um, it's about witnesses who saw the swan. So we need to correct the record as part of that. And then yeah. to throw in in the rat catcher, uh, Richard Ayoade is playing a newspaper man. And that, you know, features prominently that he's sitting at his newspaper desk. And so it's it's again that kind of journalistic Impulse that was also in the, in the first one, like you noted. Um, and so I, I do think there's really something to that that it's fun for Wes Anderson to play with the fact that all of us are seeking truth of one kind or another, and we're all gonna fail to find that in some kind of meaningful way. Um, right. and I think that's really a weird thing for a guy this deep in his career to be <laughs> seemingly kind of obsessed about. Um, because it's, it, it does, I think. It could be that all his all his work is a lie, right? Like, it could be like a midlife crisis. I don't know.
0: But we'll if we're, get... if, <laughs> if we're going to put it in the broader cultural context, it could be a reaction to postmodernism. And I did not think hmm. that until I heard you talking about it in that way. And the, the idea of, like, we're searching for truth and we can't find it. Because postmodernism's big thing is, like, give like it's a nihilistic approach to truth where it's just like there's no point everything is faulty and flawed and like and in particular memory and i feel like the impulse to be like no we can record things we can make things concrete um even if it doesn't capture exactly what we wanted to we can do that uh and sort of it's almost like a like a regaining of control over the sort Mm. of um the what's the word i'm looking for like it's not faultiness of memory but like the unreliability of memory Right. Because like and the Rupert Friend moment, I think, is a really good example of that because he's like, no, I'm telling I'm an adult telling this story about when I was a child and postmodernism would say that you couldn't trust anything I said about that. Right. But because I'm here with these train tracks, (laughs) like I'm somehow regaining (laughs) control over that idea. Right. So that's super interesting. And that actually could Wes Anderson be starting like the next, you know, literary cultural movement. That has yet to be named. That's what, like, is what comes after postmodernism.
1: It's post postmodernism until it's anti whatever the thing is that comes after post postmodernism.
0: Okay, so it's whatever's after that. <laughs> yeah. Is this? I, I
1: also, <laughs> I, I also think there's a there's a a on a, a more not to say that this stuff isn't functional uh, because I think this is really important and is that's it's really good insight to sort of think about how it is about truth and about you know what what is actually real and what can be recorded and what can be trusted. Uh, but I also think there's a function in the story of, here's this little kid that's been in peril. I'm about to put him in intense peril. Right. But <laughs> I'm going to let you know, because I'm an adult. I'm the adult version of him. He's not really going to be murdered by this right. train. So don't actually be so stressed when we do this next little segment. Like, it's still this, you know, the tone's the same. Don't think we're pivoting right. to, like, an actual, like, horror story. So think It also, I think there's it also way gives
0: away way that he survives, which is huge. Right. Right. Normal. Like, I don't want to use the word normal, but like what I would expect from a short story that seems very intense and suspenseful like this is that we don't know until the end whether or not the little boy survives. And that just sort of punctures and deflates that idea altogether because it's like, oh, he's an adult. He clearly survives whatever horrors he's going through, (laughs) even though for a second at the end, I thought that he I'm like, did he die? is is he hmm. a dead is the swan dead and he's dead or did he but and then i was like no wait no Roald Dahl told us that he's like one of those people who survives no matter what so like okay i'm like okay
2: because
0: <laughs> the imagery was very like i think he's dead <laughs> i had to remember what
1: <laughs> what, what Roald Dahl told me the, the twist is it's a sunset
2: boulevard riff like he's actually just been <laughs> the dead body the whole time. <laughs> Oh, um, um, well, and, and to that mix, I just want to add the title cards at the end. So each of the four then remind you again, almost in a historicity way of like, and here is where Roald Dahl was in his life when he uh, wrote this story. And I think it's the Rupert Friend, uh, the Swan character. They're like, and it was named after his RAF buddy to help him live on. Mm-hmm. He was killed at the Battle of Athens. I think it's that one. It's one of the four. Yeah. And so it's like, I think so. Oh, so then your stories become a way to memorialize something also from your actual life and record a truth in that way. This was my buddy who died. This was um, a newspaper story I read. And the, I believe the rat catcher had said, you know, he went to a village and was just inspired by all the kind of cool quirky village people, not like the village people, but you know, the, the (laughs) the villagers who, uh, who live in the village And the rat catcher was like one of many that was going to like, what a great idea for a short story collection. Like here's, here's all the denizens. So that adds again, like this other really weird level of like, I will show you the ways in which cultural knowledge is constructed and the flaws in each of them. But maybe the flaws don't matter because the truth can be that, you know, Rupert Friend lives and we love him and so on. Right. Like the emotion can outweigh the 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 actual record.
0: We've knocked out several questions I think I had in this Google talk. Um, <laughs> but actually, maybe it's now time because because we, we've talked about we've checked the post monitors and box. And once PT said post post I'm like, oh, right, because we used to make jokes in grad school about Popomo and how that sounded and really <laughs> um, all came flooding back. Um, but uh, I think, I assume it's Greg, cause it's referencing another Wes Anderson film, put a note in our Google <laughs> doc about, is this a response or, or is this kind of dealing with Darjeeling limited? Um, and so I assume that's us talking about imperialism and the West and the East and India but that might be me reading into it. <laughs>
2: no, look, let me let me dive in and why I added that question. So that was me, uh, well-established, uh, uh, Jen, uh, well-sniffed uh, out. Um, and I actually am stealing this thought a little bit from David Chen over at the Slash Filmcast. Sorry, nope, the Filmcast. I forgot they dropped the Slash and never looked back.
0: Yeah, what's the deal um, with that so- sidebar?
2: Uh, they used to be affiliated with the website slash film, but slash then they film? became oh
0: but they're not yeah.
2: so, that explains. So me. they're not okay. they're no longer with that website. Although they're still very friendly. It wasn't like a bad falling out. I think it was mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. you know, uh, creatively. That always confused me because I'm like, on. why does this
0: have two names and is this the same slash film or is it like I assumed it actually was the opposite mm-hmm. where it was like they both happened to come up with the same name and then it became awkward. Uh, um so that make, yeah. that makes more sense what you're saying. Carry on.
2: Well And so I will say uh, I am not somebody who wants to pretend to understand the ways in which Darjeeling Limited may or may not do harm to people of uh, the Indian culture, which I think there is an exoticism that that film expresses about India and its Indian people that I think is kind of hard to grapple with. Now, I will give my middle-aged white New Englander view on it, which is the three central characters in that film are complete a-holes and you should not trust anything they say. Like the whole point is that they, to me, is that they go to India expecting the weird Orientalist version of India that they had dreamed of and they don't find it and that's upsetting. But I do think a lot of people suggest that that film too much endorses that side of things right that it feels like the actual indian people in the film darjeeling limited are stock tropes uh you know kind of mystics and and you know spiritual uh gurus and so on so um i find it really interesting then that we have two stories in the four that focus on India, uh, Indian subplots at least, or or the full plot. And this way in which there's kind of a Brit- British colonial lens on it is, is different. Now, if we were to take Henry sugar first, I think there is a bit of a stereotypical guru at the center of it that I think you could say kind of fits into the negative uh, kind of stereotypes. However, Um, the ways in which the nasty person is actually enlightened by Eastern philosophy seems not mysticized to me that it's like, oh, wow, I wanted to get rich and actually discovered enlightenment in a meaningful way seems to kind of work against that. Um, And then I think P.T. was alluding to this moment earlier. There is uh, within the plot of Poison, there is a, you know, white British man uh, played by Benedict Cumberbatch in that one, who uh, is incredibly nasty to an Indian doctor uh, played by Sir Ben Kingsley. And uh, the end ends up being a bit of kind of uh, racist bigotry from Benedict Cumberbatch's character to to uh, Sir Ben Kingsley's character. And Dev Patel, as the mediator, goes and apologizes to the doctor. And the doctor gets this great line of, like, it's not up to you to apologize mm-hmm. and storms off into the night. And so it felt to me like there was uh, kind of comeuppance being shown of, like, hey... You know, do I think this can undo uh, years of British colonialism? No, I do not. But it felt to me that maybe Wes Anderson was like, "You know, when I dabbled in this before, I hadn't done enough to kind of break away from harmful cultural representation. So I don't know if I ascribe to this yet, but I was just kind of wondering, do we think there's a little bit of work here to to undo the damage Darjeeling Limited might have done?"
1: I mean, it's so persuasive the way that you lay it out that I kind of feel like I need to say yes. I'm like yes, uh, to to echo to echo all the t- times that Greg was saying, "Oh, like PT said something smart, Greg said something <laughs> smart," and I just have to agree with it.
0: Yeah, I think the way that it's handled is a lot better than Darjeeling Limited, or like just the the framing of India as a place and Indian people, and 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 you're right; it comes down to that one exchange between ben Kingsley's character and dev patel's character that's the thing that to me pushes it further where it's like oh we're not just in this environment and this culture like we're dealing with like like it's it's the it's the difference between telling a story that includes a moment of racism and calling it out also mm-hmm. uh and i feel like it, you know it's pretty subtle all things said and done but but I think it is the fact that that line, if you take that scene out, then I don't think it's as good. <laughs> it's not because to me, when I was watching it after Bennett Compton, Batch, Batch's character has that moment of rage. I was like, oh, that's mm. oh, I want to like. And then and then we and I, and I was like, are they just not going to say anything about this? And so I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like if we didn't have that scene afterwards. I would just have been left hanging to be like, I don't, this, this film is not telling me how I should think or feel about this, which is not okay. Right. Um, or just, it's too open. So, so that's, that's sort of my thought about it. And then, then it made me realize, well, is Roald Dahl. Cause I, I had, you know, I don't really know that much about Roald Dahl other than sort of the public discourse about, about him as a, as a figure. But, you know, I was like, Oh, was he, is he kind of like a weird Kipling kind of, figure where a lot of his literature did a lot of his literature sort of dip into the to, to post colonial or, or to, to colonial british um stories like or what did he was he a, a british soldier in in india or something like that like to, to the point where that's why he wrote these stories so that it kind of got my mind reeling about like re rethinking roldal as an author and I, I haven't answered any of those questions like i haven't done any research <laughs> to try to clear that up um but yeah well, so yeah and- Yep, to put ahead.
2: that in conversation with what PT brought up at the beginning of the episode, if he is, you know, rightfully being charged with a lot of anti-Semitism, maybe this isn't a figure that we should allow to get cleaned up, right? Like, um, are we in, like, Green Book territory or some such? No, perish the <laughs> thought. Uh, but the idea being that, you know, I obviously real authors are, you know, complicated figures just like the rest of us, and he could very well be anti-Semitic and yet say some nice progressive things to kind of out uh pace British colonialism. And to I, I I completely agree that it makes me want to do research on the man Roald doll because this uh like yourself, I only knew the children's literature. So when this even just cracked open like, oh, he's got other stuff to to study, I was Excited by that. And, you know, the, the the weird thing about the wonderful world of Henry Sugar coming out first is it sounds like whimsical and it's going to be like fantastic, Mr. Fox. And it's going to be. And so I was very surprised about halfway through. I'm like, oh, this isn't getting whimsical. <laughs> like this is this is something else. And this is a different register that I haven't heard Roald Dahl in. But I do think if you then paste this all up to I'm a nice old man who lives in my shed and has progressive values you should admire. That's problematic mm-hmm. if it's erasing kind of other complexities, and you know I think anytime a uh, actual figure gets translated into fictional character or or character in a film it's it's difficult to find that line and if it inspires people to go looking at it, that feels good to me, but um maybe that's not enough.
0: I also wondered if Wes Anderson added any added that scene, mm-hmm. you know what I mean like how because the part of me was like. When Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch is delivering those lines and you're like, oh, no, <laughs> like it's going to this <laughs> other place. Uh, then I suddenly was like, is that Roald doll speaking through that character? That's what I assumed originally. Mm-hmm. And then we get the second scene and I was like, oh, now I'm confused. So it would be really interesting to p- try to pinpoint how much Wes Anderson changed the story. If he did, it's like based on what we see here, it sounds like that he he wouldn't. But with something like that, and considering the context of the discourse surrounding Darjeeling Limited, I, I'd be really curious to, to find out if that was him being like, look, like, I'm adding another layer through which we can view this. So it's not just Roald Dahl expressing racist views through one of his characters, right?
2: <laughs>
0: well...
1: I did look up the text of the original story. Oh, you did? So uh, nice. I didn't do the research that you were all saying about Roald Dahl and his history. The only the only connection I have with all of that of like, is he maybe secretly like, you know, progressive in some ways is I know one of the other when people are like, oh, he has these, you know, he had these anti-Semitic quotes in the 80s as a public figure uh, that – to sort of add on to that is there's, well, there's some descriptions of characters that are Jewish that are questionable in some of his work. And the way the Oompa Loompas are described in the book, Charlie mm. and the Chocolate Factory, are oh. they're African pygmies who were enslaved by Willy Wonka. and But they're happy, so it's fine. Uh, and so it's a little bit like, ah, okay, like there's some questionable colonial elements here. So uh, just to, to say, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to read this, not the whole thing, but just like here's what how the story actually ends there is that moment of harry is starting there's not a lot of i i feel like there was a little more maybe uh, i won't get you know but like he starts sort of throwing some you know your you know your, your dirty little hindu sewer rat uh and starts throwing some color things the the narrator says like harry shut up it was terrible the things he was saying um then the you know it's it's the doctor leaves but the the exchange of dialogue is, don't you listen to Harry? I said, this thing's made him so he doesn't know what he's saying. Uh, and then they go out, they walk outside, presumably in silence. And then he says, the narrator says, you did a wonderful job. Thank you so much for coming in. All he needs is a good holiday. He said quietly without looking at me. Then he started the engine and drove off. So that's all that's in the story. So that like little bit with from Sir Ben that I think was like, felt very like, oh, that is poignant. There is something there. And just like it it felt so small and subtle that it didn't feel like an imposition, but that is an addition to that a hundred percent
0: supports Greg, what Greg was saying. Yes. About this is a uh, listeners should to know Jeremy I had Levin. walked
2: away from the camera while that was read and alone away from my microphone, I went, Oh like, oh there it is. <laughs> so yes. Uh absolutely. Uh so I think and and I respect Wes Anderson for that because I'm a fanboy, but also because like you know I think I think he is thoughtful about the discourse around him. You know the jokes this summer were that he's seen your memes and he's not impressed, um, and I think he is aware of the kind of purchase his his figure has, his work has. So um, that's really encouraging to me. And you know then it becomes a question about in light of the anti semitism that maybe Raw Doll doesn't deserve that, and that's really curious as a Because these films ask about the question of a historical record and truth, then all of this, I think, that we've been discussing is in play, and it Mm. makes it really fascinating and hard set of questions, so... Well done. Good good research PT. Hey,
1: that's yeah. I I will I will note I didn't look up the text of the other stories cuz I wasn't as interested because <laughs> right. I didn't have that same question. Yeah. Uh, so maybe there are other little alterations along the way that, you know, were also significant, maybe not in that kind of reclamation of uh, of something or trying to uh, improve the impact in a different era. Uh, but I I also think and again, this is uh, maybe biased from my perspective of i did do the thing of i sat down and watched all of them together where i was kind of feeling like these make the most sense together and it it opens with the longer story which from my thinking my my experience or at least maybe my default assumption about short story collections is i would think the like One that feels like the novella would come last. That usually it's like short story, short story, short stories, and then the longer one would be at the end. But this very clearly has it first. I think that's needed to sort of set up the nesting structure, set up the the author within the story. Uh, But I also think it book ends well, like because as Greg was saying, it is this sort of I find this report of. Uh, a, a doctor in a far away land and he found you know a person from an even further away land that had this mystical ability and blah 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 and the sort of that kind of uh, uh you know colonial orientalism uh concept of all of that is framed nicely with this being the end note of the whole project of mm-hmm. you know this sort of thing of uh you know it's it's you know that that little insight that is added in you know and again might be one of the few things that is uh, created whole cloth for this, is is putting that in. I think that that kind of is a nice bookend to this whole experience of, yeah, kind of like, yeah, I know, like that's kind of a a, a crafted, that was a crafted reality that British people had in the mid 20th century, that this is what the world was like in the same way that these stories are all crafted, in the same way that this uh, stagecraft is all crafted, in the same way that maybe what we consider true and truth is uh, is all crafted.
0: This is now making me think of the French dispatch because I mean that whole the whole series is about these expat writers, right? So then 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 we start to see like a wider interest that Wes Anderson might have in sort of like going to another place in another culture and sort of like as a writer or as a storyteller, like how what is the the proper way to engage with that creative process, right? And almost like the I'm not going to remember. Greg might remember the, the ways of reading textbook that we had to use at Northeastern (laughs) had (laughs) an anthropologist essay that was about like roosters. It was about, uh, thank you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good, Um, good. essay. Yeah. That
0: that it is. It is. And like that whole story, that that whole essay is sort of contemplating, is there a way to actually know another culture, right? Like that's part of it. Mm. Um, can we? Can we? It does documenting and recording it do so? Like you know, like what what happens in that process, kind of. And so, yeah, I feel like this is in, this is interesting addition to Wes Anderson's larger body of work, which I hadn't really thought of before we started talking about it. So,
2: um, yeah. um, I was also thinking about the fresh Dispatch because technically, I'm always thinking about the French Dispatch. And uh, to note, in that sense, um. Remember, Wes Anderson himself is an expat now. He lives in France uh, and doesn't come back to America other than uh, for promotion. But within those, all the frames um, often bring the representation of an authentic experience into another medium before it becomes or after it becomes an article. It is... It is an experience. Then there is an article about it. But then all of the narrators are presenting that article in some third way Mm. later, one of which is a museum in the heartland of America that is trying to capture what it's like to be in this French prison. Right. So it's like the same. You're absolutely right. The connections there and French dispatch rules.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Although I feel like these shorts, my hot take is that I think this was in my letterbox review. These shorts are proof that French dispatch probably should have been a series of shorts. Ooh. Sorry. Harsh.
1: Who's to say it wasn't? And you just <laughs> you just didn't watch it, because well, because I, I think the
0: well, okay. I mean, maybe we can get into that as we as we share our rankings.
1: Uh... Mm. Fair. Um, Before we do the rankings, that was such a good transition. I'm sorry to blow it up, but I do just want to also add, in addition to all this, uh, another sort of just wrinkle is the sort of questions of duality that are in here, where you know, it, because this is, in a way, Wes Anderson is like, all these stories are great. I'm presenting you a film version of them, but actually, like, it's a stage version. And that there is this element of like, I love these uh, Roald Dahl short stories. Maybe Roald Dahl has got some elements in him that's not that great. Uh, and I think a lot of that sort of what we're talking about, you know, what, what, the way that these people, the British people of the uh, mid 20th century might've thought about folks in other countries uh, versus the way they actually were and the way that they lived. Like all of that is uh, underscored and emphasized, especially in Henry Sugar by all of the actors having at least two roles. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they come in as someone else, which, underscores that sort of high school play thing of we only have so many actors, so we got to double up on the roles, but also sort of shows the duality of uh, all the people involved, that there's this complexity, that there isn't a singular answer or a singular thing that can be the truth.
0: Now you segue us into rankings, PT. Uh,
1: Well, similar to how there's no singular truth, there's no singular ranking of these four (laughs) short stories, uh, short films. So, uh, however, we're going to try to at least share our own uh by uh going uh what's the order we're gonna go from four to one like low to high or high to low
0: we're yeah we'll start at the bottom and work our way up and then in our google doc just to keep it straight i put in a turn order so that we won't Hmm. we won't forget um yeah so greg you're up first
2: welcome to my world uh yes uh i'm gonna just say my rankings come down purely to personal enjoyment um while we'll continue to talk a little bit about the netflix of it all uh i do think um some of these for me lost a little enjoyment because you have to be pretty locked in and you know to add to this debate about the theater versus home One thing I love about going to the theater is I don't look at my phone ever because I'm not a terrible human being like so many of my (laughs) theater-going brethren are. Uh, Nothing beats when I saw – uh, once upon a time in Hollywood and the woman next to me literally got her phone out and recorded Leonardo DiCaprio freaking out in the trailer. I'm like, this is, this is unacceptable. You can't, you just can't do this. This is not, she didn't listen to me. Uh, so uh, purely on my enjoyment of I was sitting there um, and I will say I watched each the day it came out. And then this afternoon I sat down and I, I bombed through all four together But I put them in reverse order. So I was trying to see if the order mattered. So uh, so originally, uh, just to establish for all of us, the order they came out was Henry Sugar, the Swan Rat Catcher Poison. And then today, this afternoon, I went Poison Rat Catcher, uh, the Swan, uh, Henry Sugar. So uh number four on my list with great apologies I'm gonna go rat catcher um it felt like the least substantial to me it was fun it was perhaps a little more what I expected them all to be that it was kind of frivolous and and silly um but it didn't really work that well for me of uh, relatively of the four uh though I will give a special shout out, I hope Ray Fines got offset and called um is it I want to say it's Timothy Spall. Is that the right actor who played uh, the uh, worm tail in the Harry Potter movies? And was like, you'll never believe what I just had to do. Like I had to do the same thing you did for four movies uh, uh, for a play uh, for one, one short film. So uh, uh, not, not bad by any means, but it just didn't feel like it had any of the additional resonance. um, uh, And I think it's the only one that featured significant amounts of stop motion, which it was fun to see the kind of play of stop motion uh, again because I do enjoy that from Life Aquatic forward in the Wes Anderson filmography, but um, just just not my favorite. So I'm going forth with Ratcatcher.
1: I mean, ditto. Uh, I was exactly yeah. the same. I have very little to say. Like it was great. Like I really liked. Uh, I really liked Ratcatcher. I had a fun time with it. Uh, I enjoyed the uh, Ray fines, especially really biting into the role, so to speak, and just <laughs> like just having a having a real meal of it and uh, and richard iwatte as na- narrating that one was uh was super fun uh but yeah it, it it's the one that i the only one that I left without some sort of like moment or or image that I kept coming back to uh and, and you know it's interesting I'm glad that you sort of did that reverse order thing because I was wondering if there was some degree of it just sort of being the, the lull of the, the, these have been unfolded. Again, I took little, little stops in between, but you know, th- this is, these have been going for a little over an hour. Like, where am I now? Like what's happening? But, uh, but yeah, it, great. Like it, and if they had all been like this, we all would have had a good time. Uh, we probably would maybe have shaved twenty minutes off this podcast because we wouldn't have <laughs> had as much to talk about. But we would have been like, "Oh, wasn't it fun when this happened?" And wasn't it fun when that happened? So uh, you know, uh, glad it exists. Nothing wrong with that. And uh, you know, I uh, you know love the idea of their, them being called the Rat Man. Uh, I want <laughs> yeah. exterminators to be called Rat Man again.
0: <laughs> and ratter isn't that? the not they use yeah. that word? Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is also my number four uh and i would just say my my favorite moment in this one is when he's holding the tin but it's just his Mm. fingers making the shape of the tin (laughs) and he's like this tin never gets out of my sight and you're just like but there's nothing there (laughs) um and so and to me that was one of the the moments where i was like oh wow like this is this is very poignantly sort of and this was to me was like the most meaningful moment in the whole one because i agree with Mm. both of you that like this one had the least thematic material i think to chew on um but that moment was like well it's literally an empty space that he's holding in front of us to be like when you tell a story you visualize it in your head it's not about the actual an actual physical object but when we tell a story on film there's always a visual like marker right and so to take that away from us and have him just like hold his fingers with an empty circle <laughs> i thought was really brilliant <laughs> um but and then the other thing too was like uh this is the one i fell asleep in the middle of because i because i was trying to watch all of them together and then i think i mentioned that on a previous episode uh and i was just really tired um and so and and but what what if i had just gotten to the part with the animated rat I probably would have stayed awake through the whole
2: thing <laughs> I fell asleep right
0: before that. So when I went back to rewatch it the other day, I was like, I was like, oh, like, but first of all, that rat was way too skinny, which I get is the point, but disturbing. Mm. Um, and, and, and I, <laughs> when, when that shifts to uh, Rupert friend, putting the fake teeth in his mouth
1: because <laughs> mm. he becomes
0: the rat and then they shoot it like up really close i was like this is so campy and i love it um <laughs> but but i think it kind of junk jumped the shark a little bit in that moment um <laughs> in terms of like taking me taking it seriously uh but i would say that out of the four of them this one reminded me the most of what i had originally associated with Roll doll in terms of types of storytelling because i think mm. the ending where he's like well all chocolate has rat's blood in it or whatever <laughs> right or licorice um I was like, oh, that's a very Wonka, the witches, like kind of twisted scare the children, sort of, but be whimsical enough that it's okay. To to me, I was like, that was the only one of these that I was like, oh, this is like the Dahl I knew before watching these. Um so yeah. What's that's your number three? Now Greg?
2: Three invocations of the name, so we have to pause to play the Wonka trailer. Thanks a lot, Jen. <laughs> and
0: Oh no. <laughs> And we're back. <laughs>
2: oh man! Somehow Hugh Grant's as Oompa Loompa was even worse than the racist Oompa Loompas. My God. I'm just I'm just glad Timothy Chalamet can be best actor back to back. Uh, now that
1: Wonka and Dune are in separate years. Thank <laughs> oh you.
0: Wait. So there, there was a, I didn't watch it, but there was a there was another a new trailer today, right? Is that what you're referring to? Oh,
2: I don't know. I don't think he okay. was. You weren't no. okay,
0: but PT. Didn't. But okay, there was. I just know I didn't I, watch
2: it. I've seen. Every movie I've gone to lately, that's been attached to it. And I'm like, no, stop. Stop everything. No, I thank you. Yeah,
0: I don't know. All I right. I'll keep us on track. Though. I get <laughs> I get that it's made by the Paddington, too. This is my last walk a take. Uh, I get that it's made by the Paddington people. But there's something does not feel right about this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the longest. Deeply
2: upsetting. Like in the licorice. It doesn't feel right. Uh, right? <laughs> number <laughs> number three for me uh, and I'm now nervous we're going to be identical and we've come up with this ranking (laughs) bit just without telling each other just to tell each other how smart we are Uh, I'm going to go poison down here now maybe that would have changed in my mind a little bit after our conversation and PT's revelation but I will say um, I liked the tension of poison but this is the one that had trouble keeping my attention and I was reaching for my phone now I imagine if I saw this in the theater I would have been like sucked in completely and really in it um so it was it just didn't quite click as well as the two that remained for me despite really enjoying it and and really enjoying that final moment um i will give a shout out to the slope pan down benedict cumberbatch ending directly on his crotch which i was like (laughs) wes come on buddy what's happening here uh which very strange in his filmography again but uh you know it's hey we all got to we all got to be cumber bitches sometimes so anyway that's my number 3 <laughs> wow i was going to
1: say there's a lot of um facebook groups full of middle age ladies that would be very excited to know <laughs> There's there's a pan a, a pan down his body. We uh, <laughs> might be in trouble, guys. I also have poison at number three. Mm. Um, for basically, I, I almost put it up uh, higher because of that last moment, and I felt like that that moment was so yeah so affecting, and I thought you know worked so well and hinted at a depth that these these shorter ones weren't really engaging with to, to too much of a degree. But you know, it is only the last like one little bit of like you know, maybe 15 or 20 seconds across this 16, 17 minute, uh, story, which is very fun. I have a really, you know, had a really good time. Uh, did not know this story at all was pretty certain. I was like, well, this is just going to end up, there's no snake. Right. So, you know, I felt real smart that I had, uh, out thought Henry, um, and, in uh, the thing, but I was having a good time with it. And I, again, I liked, uh, the, I mean, I, again, I like this in all of them, but I particularly liked the sort of um, we go to the kitchen, like we work this thing out, and the sort of the work with the the stage hand and the the uh, layout of the the scenery. I thought was uh, particularly fun here, and yeah, what, I mean, what what a great combination of of three performers uh, in uh, uh, in in Dev Patel, uh, Ben Kingsley. Sorry, Sir Ben Kingsley. I respect that. Greg really wants the, the title, the honorific in there, uh, and. Um, a regular person, Benedict Cumberbatch, who uh, who you know is like that's a great combination of people. I really like this one, and uh, it only speaks to how much I like the other two that it's only at number three.
0: Well, I do not have this as my number three, oh, so we're we're good, we're good, Ooh. we're good. So right. my number three, uh, and I feel like this might this might makes a waves is Swan. And what's interesting is that I feel like when I initially watched these i thought swan was going to be my number one Mm. and that's mostly because rupert friend does a funny voice and it made me really happy
1: (laughs) multiple actually
0: um Mm. and and, yeah and like he never he never changes his facial expression when he changes voices and that to me was hilarious and, and and very unsettling at the same time um and really really committed to the idea that these like we oh we have to make sure people know that these were sh- written short stories right that these were these, these were literary works before they were these shorts um and i feel like his commitment to like a straight face as he's sort of switching voices i think was was really important in terms of contributing to that idea and but on a rewatch and i don't i can't actually say for certain if i rewatched all of them oh no i did well okay so if we if we count when I fell asleep halfway through rat catcher, then I've watched all of these twice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you don't uh, count that, then I've only watched Ratcatcher catcher once. Um, but it sort of dropped down when I rewatched them because I feel like the suspense was there in terms of like, but until it wasn't as we talked about earlier. Um, and then it was like, where is the story going? And it's just like escalating and escalating and escalating. Um, but to me, by the end of it, when I watched it the second time, I just wasn't as wowed by it in terms of like, wow, we really went on a journey with this character. I was just sort of like, well, that was awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's why sort of why it dropped down. Um, and I just didn't like, I, I, there wasn't as clear as a thematic takeaway um, mm. from this at, whereas in the, in the ones that are my one on two, I can point to very clear things where I'm like, oh, okay, this is the thesis of this film. Um, so yeah, Greg, what's your number two?
2: Uh, let's see. I have gone back and forth over and over again on these last two. Cause I do think they're pretty equal in my mind for what I'm saying, but I will just to be a, uh, a weirdo. I'm going to go with Henry sugar at number two. And I have immense, immense love for this short. I absolutely love, um, the first 10 minutes when you kind of zip through the frames and the way, Rafe Finds leaves the shed to go to the outside the mansion. And then the way Benedict Cumberbatch walks towards the the camera and the library comes down behind him blew me away. That was the first time I was like, Oh my God, like we've got something great here. <laughs> like this is incredible. Like I'm I'm so locked into this. And, and um, he just casually
0: I, crosses his legs. Yeah. Yeah. It, and the, sits back and like nothing's happening. It's great.
2: I really have no complaints about any performer in any of these because they all—I don't know how many takes they did. There were times where I became really glad that it wasn't a oneer, but also was wondering like, why didn't they just do this as one long take? Because there are some very long takes in in these uh, shorts. Um, so I think this one I felt the length of, which it's only like 40 minutes compared to the 17 minutes and the others. And it has a lot in it, but especially on the rewatch, it kind of, l- I don't know, the, around the two thirds mark. I'm like, Oh, this, this is still going, huh? Cause there's a lot going on uh, around the time Benedict Cumberbatch is throwing money. I was like, Oh yeah, there's still a lot of this to go. Um, is that the Muppet
0: wanted- Christmas Carol balcony?
2: Oh, I don't know. I
0: don't it looks so, exactly but... like it—the one that Scrooge comes out of at the end and is like, "I'm changed, man." Merry Christmas to you all. I swear, it's the same one.
1: It did wow. have me thinking of of Christmas Carol, like of like, oh, this is the Scrooge mm-hmm. moment. Uh, but I didn't connect it it might be the you know a, a similar, if not the same, set as the
2: when Michael Caine <laughs> is. Great. Sorry. Um. So uh, well, and I also want to shout out why uh, the an uh, under spoken moment i love at least i mean i haven't heard anybody talk about this i actually really love the moment it's once we enter dev patel's piece of the story zed zed Chatterley uh, or chatter 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 g I, I I think the, it
0: is but i'm Chatter-G. not sure
2: um there's a shot after they bandage uh sir ben kingsley um and all of a sudden this like very constructed everything's on a giant set becomes a real building for a second, right? And they walk through the halls chasing him. And I, on the rewatch, I'm like, oh, this is like the only thing that's real in any of these, I think, is like we're actually in a hospital because they go down a set of stairs. I'm like, you couldn't have faked this. It's there. So um, yeah, no complaints about this at all. I think it's really, really fun. Um, I do like, uh, I, I think... It was also a revelation. Obviously, he's in uh, The Poison, as we just talked about. But I was like, how has Benedict Cumberbatch not been in all Wes Anderson films? And then I was like, how has Dev Patel not been in all Wes Anderson films? Because they're both um, so good. And that's no disrespect to uh, Richard Ayoade or or Sir Ben Kingsley. But um, it was was really great. And um, I enjoyed this one a lot.
1: I will agree that I I think I ultimately gave the Jeffrey Wright uh, honorary award for why are you not in all of Wes Anderson movies award to <laughs> Dev Patel, but Benedict Cumberbatch was a very close second. Uh, mm. And luckily, the process is redeemed. We will not have the same list. <laughs> I did put the Swan at number two. Uh, it was it, it was tight. Uh, honestly, the three I was kind of moving, kind of moving all of them around. But uh, I, I I do love the Swan. It's the one. Well, no, because Henry Sugar is my number one. Obviously, I'm sorry to to break the mold, but that's the one I probably thought of the most. But the Swan is one that, like, when I initially watched them, and kind of all three, I was like, okay, and the three short ones, you know, like, how are they going to sit? And I like let it kind of linger for a while, and the Swan just kept, ironically, like bubbling up, flying up to this to the top, uh, and like little moments of it were 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 sticking with me, and uh, I really think that if I had to, which luckily I don't, but uh, if I had to pinpoint like, well, what what was my favorite performance? It's Rupert Friend in this just because he has so much to do and, uh, and he's just you know, on the run. And like Greg was saying, maybe one and a half speed, like trying to like rattle through all of this, switching between the voices uh, and, you know, walking to the camera from the camera, uh, the, the, the whole like, Setup of how it looks when the train's flying over. Again, there was this thing in the back of my mind where I'm like, "This is the Max Fisher players. Like this is like, <laughs> like the version of the helicopter landing in their Apocalypse Now is or Platoon. I forget which which movie they're doing, but like you know, it's like, oh yeah, like this is if if Max Fisher was had to do a train running by, they'd, they'd set it up this way. But yeah, I mean, I I I see what Jen is saying, where it's like, you know, ultimately it's kind of like, what was the like takeaway or what was the point. <laughs> but uh, you know i think you know just the the inherent like cruelty of humanity and how like there's people who are just are trying to survive when they're put in a position where folks are being mean to them and the fact that halfway through it's this was me like this was my story like i rupert mm. friend the master person, the master performer uh, presenting this to you, like this is where I ended up and I'm doing great like everything turned out fine is the sort of like overarching like, you know, I don't know, like nice thing that that's happening that's like r- running underneath it uh, even though it does sort of look like this kid crashes and dies uh in in his backyard uh with the swan wings tied to him at the end of the story but that's okay i don't mind a, a nice little dark fable that is sort of what i would you know what i think of of roald dahl's is kind of like you know again the 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 licorice was maybe that most, the most wonka-ish of it all, but this kind of like, it's here's three. this story. Play the
2: trailer again. Play the chill. Tri- That's three no, again. Oh, it happened. <laughs> the taste like strawberries ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but, uh, but the,
1: uh yeah, the, like, you know, it's this, this nasty little story of, uh of people being mean to each other. And there's like a, enough hope of perseverance embedded in it, but it's not really like emphasized or part of the text. And it's just like, yeah, this, this kid did nothing wrong. And he just got, The the crap beat out of him for the day, and that sucked. Have a good, have a good night, everyone. Sleep well.
0: Is the implication (laughs) that he actually managed to fly with the swan wings? Yeah, or is it like like several people reported that they saw a swan flying around town or something like that, and then his mom looks up and he crashes down. So, like, yeah, I mean,
1: magical realism. I I don't know, Uh, but I I think it's supposed to be. Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, I I think that you could read it as he sort of just realized he could glide away from where he was and it's a small town. It doesn't take long to get where he's going. But the sort of he sees a light, he jumps towards the light that he is able to do something magical to survive uh, and get out of that scenario uh, and then look like he died.
0: Which makes it a really good pairing with Henry Sugar, because that whole thing is like, how can you see without your eyes? Right. And that's everyone in the story reacts to that like it's impossible and it's a miracle and like, you know, um even the scientists and the doctors are just like, how can this possibly be? So so it's interesting that there's the the role that the fantastical um plays in in these stories. Um though we don't get that as much in the other two at all. So it's interesting. Okay. So uh we're oh I have to give my number two. So <laughs> Uh, My number two, though, this was really tough for me, uh, was Henry Sugar. Mm. And actually, I thought I was going to be the cool one that zagged. Uh, uh, I was going to try to be the Chris Ryan uh, (laughs) 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 by not putting Henry Sugar first, because i was like, oh, everyone's going to put Henry Sugar first. Um, So I'm I'm glad we're not we're not just doing that. Uh, But I think for me, this is in second place because not just because it's like the obvious pick. For number one and i wanted to not do that but because the sticking point for me is what the ending is trying to say because on the one hand he says that the he describes like oh and what what normally a storyteller would do with this character is describe how he uses his powers to like ironically see his own death and then he dies right um but then they, they keep going and it's this like, and he was the best person ever, <laughs> right? Mm. And did all these amazing things for the world. And then he sort of dies the same way. Um, <laughs> and, and like he knew, like he could see his own death with his abilities. And I was just like, what is, what? <laughs> like, what is that about? <laughs> um, and so I was like, and with scratched. yeah, I was Scratch, kind of scratching my head at the end. And then I, I do think that last section just adds and maybe i'm exactly the right audience for wes anderson he's like calling out me out and making fun of me because i i felt like that last bit was sort of like an unnecessary epilogue almost and i would rather have ended sort of where he describes the sort of quote-unquote perfect literary ending right um so so maybe that says more about this choice says more about me than it does about (laughs) the film um and I'm, I'm actually the target and I feel personally attacked. Maybe that's why it's a number two. Um, but yeah, obviously, obviously there's so much. Deb, Deb Patel, I think is my favorite, as much of a fan of Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch as I am. Deb Patel, just like he just understood the assignment so perfectly where he's like, because he's the one who has to keep being like, I said, he said, mm-hmm. like const- constantly and that has to be exhausting. Like, I don't know what kind of breathing exercises he did before he <laughs> played this role, um, <laughs> but it worked. Yeah and I and I feel like also structurally the way that it to go back to what we talked about at the beginning like the way that it sort of linearly kind of does that nesting egg we move further in and then we move further out we sort of practice it with the writing hut at the beginning right because it kind of like peels layers away and gets further and further away to create distance but it's just like the different scenery that's kind of pulling away and then I think the story itself kind of does that in reverse and I feel like the end just didn't feel as sort of structurally Sound when it's like pulling back out again. Um, bam. Greg, what's your Uh, number one?
2: Just because Jen is an extreme podcast professional, I want the listeners to know that in the Google Doc, she filled in PT's number one because he revealed it, but left mine and hers blank because we haven't revealed it. And who could possibly know (laughs) what our number ones are until we say them out loud? So, uh, kudos to Jen for accurate note keeping down to the (laughs) moment.
1: Greg's number one in the twist is the French Dispatch.
2: (laughs) There it is,
0: which should have been a series of shorts. I stand by this. Um,
2: Come Uh, at me. So so, uh, 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 let's see. Quiet up and listen down. Here we go, friends. Here's mine. Uh, Strike that. Reverse it. Uh, Now we're just doing Wonka bits. Uh, So my number one is, of course... The swan. Uh, I want to flash back to uh, the last time I saw uh, both uh, Jen and PT in person was at Celebration Anaheim. And Jen and I had to stand in a very long Ewan McGregor line. And at least when I was standing in the very long Ewan McGregor line, I saw Rupert Friend sitting at a table. And I don't know how his weekend was, but he was by himself at that moment because he'd only played one small part in one small star Wars show. And some might say it's a little soon since we only met you Thursday night to pay lots of money for your autograph. But I would like to go back in time and apologize to Mr. Friend. uh, And I would rush over to his table and get his autograph now, because uh, this was my favorite short uh, was the Swan for all the reasons that have been said. um, And his performance was my absolute favorite. Uh, The, physicality hasn't been shouted out that he spends a lot of this kind of walking backwards and, and everybody does some of this at different times, but I also thought the artifice uh, was more on the surface here in ways I really enjoyed that there were little uh, hatches that popped open uh, more frequently in this one. And it looked uh, faker in, in a lot of ways. And I think that was really fun to be telling your most serious seeming story for at least two thirds till the magical realism happens um but to kind of make it as fake as possible and um you know when the the little boy appears behind him and the the stagehand reaches out and has to i think take away i want to say it's his bird and then put his hands in bindings and uh so on um i just also want to shout out this uh well and then to finish the Rupert friend, uh, my, my, uh, Zencaster name, which I'm now pointing to for people who can't see the video is Rupert friends, blue converse. Cause they were awesome, uh, that he was wearing some classic blue chucks and, uh, he was wearing a director's, uh, style suit, which I associate with Wes Anderson. And I believe that goes back to Wes Anderson's American express commercial, which, uh, you could go find on YouTube and is one of, uh, the many things that get counted on Letterbox as uh, Wes Anderson directed shorts is his American Express commercial. I think it's pretty much the same suit. And it's, you know, if I were to picture Wes Anderson, he would uh, be wearing this despite the recent photo of him with Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Emma uh, from Harry Potter. Uh, what's her name? Emma Watson and uh, Watson, yeah. somebody else. And Scarlett Johansson uh, looking just like the uncoolest guy at the cool kids table somehow. But I would still put him in this suit. And I take that to mean this is the one that Wes sees himself in. And I think it's pretty easy to believe Wes Anderson was bullied when he was little. Maybe not this extremely, but um, the fact that he would dress Rupert Friend as himself... Uh, in this one is is touching to me and, and it is you know i do think it goes on a little long um i also have to say it extends this weird subcurrent across so many of wes anderson's movies of animal cruelty um and obviously the the rat catcher does too but you know uh, Tenenbaums kills a dog uh, um moonrise kingdom kills a dog uh, uh, i think life aquatic they abandon a dog Cody, no, Cody, oh, we have to go back. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't. Uh, and so there's just this odd streak of like a little darkness around kind of dead animals. And the Swan is kind of one of the more gruesome things, one of the more violent things, but it's very much like the, the dog in moonrise kingdom that when it's you' I mean, it's a, in this case, it's dismembered, but when the dog is on screen, it having been killed, it's kind of so fake it, you know, it's, it's fake. Um, But I just, I thought this one was so much fun. And I I do like the touch at the end that's magical realism because I, I took that to, you know, uh, that's, that, that's a little bit of the royal doll whimsy at this like dark, dark moment. And I think sometimes in short stories, that's where an author will push something to his extreme. And I thought that was this one and just retreated at the last moment to be like, I just can't quite do it. Um, so that stood out to me and, and is something I like in short fiction when authors do that. So, uh, yeah, let's be dark sometimes, Wes Anderson. Uh, we like all that. Oh, also, the snake Maybe... was killed in Darjeeling Limited. I forgot that one. I was trying to <laughs> count them true. all in my head. I don't think there's an the... animal in Grand Budapest. Is there? Jeff Goldblum. The the most noble animal of the animal kingdom is Jeff getting killed. <laughs> uh, the,
0: my conclusion from what you just said was that Wes Anderson must have had a very traumatic loss of a pet, or like, grew up where people were mutilating animals, or hunting, mm. or something like that, It really traumatized him. Because if he's the stand-in for Rupert Friend in this one, right, and the and the the horror almost more than the cruelty directly. Uh, perpetrated to the the little boy right he almost is more upset at the the uh, the killing of the birds right because the story mm-hmm. opens with they have this the string of the little birds that they like and it's like really well described i want to say because they describe multiple birds that they've killed <laughs> or name yeah. at least named multiple types of birds and then the swan so this one's the title. I think you just explained why you just explained my rankings. Cause the two with the traumatic animal things are at the bottom of my list. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm Well, and remember um, the
2: little boy says, don't kill the swan. Uh, I, he, she could have signets in there, which I yeah. believe is the word for a baby swan. And mm-hmm. so that's his concern. And what happens at the end, except the mom comes to comfort the little signet, right? The him yeah. who has just flown. So it's it is a, a weird kind of parallel, a doubling to steal PT's word from earlier. So very traumatic uh, for
0: that... fans of the trumpeter swan.
2: Mm, oh, true. <laughs> which uh, I was, which Chen. I was when <laughs> <laughs> Rupert Friend is also underrated in uh, in Asteroid City, too, as the country-western singer. Oh, yeah. Um yeah. I almost so forgot that great. was him. So, so great. So uh, more Rupert Friend uh, everywhere. I'm, I'm a big fan now.
1: I mean, he might have won the Jeffrey Wright Award if he hadn't already been in Asteroid City. So he might have won <laughs> like in go. Asteroid City. Uh, so my Wonka double-ha moment from uh, what Greg was saying... Was uh, realizing that he uh, wants to apologize to Rupert Friend for not talking to him, but doesn't want to apologize for us, to us for forgetting that we had lunch in Chicago during seas. Uh, oh, not- you're <laughs> right. Uh, actually- you're right. But that's okay. That's all right. It was yeah, a good setup right. for the story. Uh, it was anyway. so much
2: poutine and so much chicken pot pie. <laughs> it's all a blur. So <laughs> just a <laughs> lot of carbs and gravy. It was.
0: It was. Uh, but it delightful. was cold, uh, so it was okay. We needed it. Um, and you guys were, got
1: to go and see uh, Ant Man and the Wasp versus Quantumania or whatever, however
0: the title is set up. Uh, a movie we missed, that. We missed the first 20 minutes and it didn't matter. I still have um, not watched
2: the first 20 uh, minutes.
0: You still have gone back and watched it? No, and
2: it's only like wow. we only missed like ten. It wasn't even that much. okay. well, but, with
0: previews, I guess you're probably right.
2: Yeah, uh-huh. but we still anyway. I still haven't played it. Yeah. it's fine. That movie's fine. It's not
1: good, but it's not bad. Uh, so my number one, this is another last crusade versus raise of the last Ark moment where it's like yeah. everyone's so happy to zag away from the favorite that I gotta sit here and be like, but the favorite <laughs> is actually the right choice uh, or, or whatever. It's my choice. Uh, and it is it is Henry Sugar. Uh, as as number one, uh, you know, I think maybe uh, I'm I, I'm just uh, it's a, it's a size issue where I'm like, well, it's twice as long, it must be twice as good. But uh, I, I do think it anchors this whole project. I, I don't think the other shorts work without it. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's important. It's the only one I think stands on its own. Uh, whereas I think the other ones like you can watch them on their own and it's fine, but they don't really make sense without each other and especially without this one. Uh, and uh, I will say, and this is not like a, a defense, but I, as, as sort of my, I guess my version, my interpretation, especially in light of some of the earlier conversation of what uh, we've mentioned a couple of times. And then Jen was saying was like, I I don't know. I didn't like the moment where it was, here's the potential end is that feels like, like that the the extra part after the this is what the end could be it is the is what makes it a story like greg said earlier of this is a someone who against their best wishes and intentions grows because of eastern philosophy and like becomes a better person but because that moment that like uh oh like you know the the, litter, the the story you're expecting or the story you would expect is the sort of traditional british mid 20th century version of a story or at least mid 20th century story that's the twilight zone episode which is here's mm. this thing this magical thing that you find out about and you get this information and you put all this work in and you just get right to the point where you're finally going to get everything that you want and you die uh and it's like just when you could possibly have gotten your dreams you know it's like you break your glasses when you could read all the books uh it's this like oh your 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 all the things that you worked towards was a waste because your life ended but it's like well that's the easy ending what if the ending is instead that all this energy and all this work i put into it uh, i actually grew and i learned and i could be a better person and let me try to figure out how to do that and maybe it's too long and maybe it does, there is actually – it feels like it's five minutes of him throwing money off the balcony. I don't know if it is actually that long, but it's like individual. <laughs> I, I like that it's like one bill and then you, keep, you watch it float down and then you hear someone be like, hey. And they're like, like you can keep it. You're like, okay. Uh, and then they like walk away and he does it again with someone else. And then it's finally like, all right, whatever. Um, but I, you know, I I liked that. I thought that was, that was funny enough to be worth the amount of time on it. Uh, and then, yeah, I did not expect the sort of branching out of and all the costume changes of all the different disguises he was wearing when he took on different identities that like sort of uh, altruistic catch me if you can uh, beat uh, of uh, what was going on there. Uh, yeah, I just liked all of that. And I liked the way that, again, it told a story of, you know, this this person who, uh, as, as alluded to in the intro, is like ni- neither bad nor good, but just sort of this this rich leech on society who was not really doing anything learned through this, uh, what, what, could be this sort of like, Ooh, weird Eastern magic, but actually was like, Oh, I guess centering myself and looking at things, I can realize that there's more to life than just trying to win some bets. And I should instead, uh, try to, try to do something beneficial for the world. What a nice story and what a nice thing to share. And I thought that it, it did a really good job of, matching that's the Russ Anderson matching that story to sort of his, uh, aesthetic and presentation of things. That's my number one.
0: I am now realizing that the opening quotes that I chose for both of you match your number ones. Hey, hey. nice so, job.
2: Nice job. What
0: a good friend I am. <laughs> um, okay. So my mind's poison. I'm not going to say too much about it. Cause we've already talked about it a lot, but, um, as I type it in diligently, uh, into our chart, um, but for me the suspense of this was really great almost in like a Hitchcockian way but it's like if if Wes this is Wes Anderson's version of Hitchcock (laughs) right in some ways um because it's so tense for so long um and I and I just really love the ending of this. And I guess really, yeah, it's interesting that for me, the rankings really depended on how they ended and sort of how what I took away from them at the end. Because this one, when it ended, I, it blew my mind where I was like, and I guess this just means I'm a lot more gullible than P.T. because I did not see that there was no snake coming. There was no evidence <laughs> in the other shorts to indicate that this would be a bait and switch situation. <laughs> and that, you know, I was like, oh, there actually is a snake. Because like Henry Sugar is so meticulous about how medical it is um i mean there are actual doctors in it so that makes sense but you know i mean like to me that primed me to not really think consider the option that there was no snake and so when there is no snake it really blew me away and i was just like what does this mean this can mean so many things my mind started reeling of like the 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 snake was actually a metaphor for like our fear of living. And like, like it went off the deep end with like trying to interpret this ending. And, and to me, it works on two levels. It has sort of this like existential sort of philosophical, actually very, very asteroid city sort of like contemplation of like, Oh, this thing we were so terrified of actually doesn't even exist in the situation. Um, And then I thought it was a really nice, we've talked about how the story in other ways was a really nice ending like, or nice um, film to end the set on and i feel like it also is that because when you when you reveal that the snake is gone is not actually there um it goes back to the thing i was talking about earlier about like the tin is non-existent mm. right like like if there's this this lack or this empty space i don't mean that in a Freudian way i mean <laughs> mean that like <laughs> um, i mean that in the sense of like oh this thing that we built this entire story around was actually never, was never there. And it's just this empty space. So, um, and the idea of like visual representation versus like uh, literary storytelling. And it like kind of really cinched everything together nicely for me. So that was why I ultimately picked it as, but Benedict Cumberbatch is actually not as good in this one, mostly because he doesn't have as much to do. He's lying and Mm. can't really speak (laughs) for most of it. And he's so much, so charming in Henry Sugar. So I almost switched them for that reason, but um, yeah. All right. So- As we often find ourselves, we're at a crossroads where we have the rhetorical situation and we have Oscars watch and we're 10 minutes away from hitting the two hour mark. (laughs) Um, I did want to come back to Netflix though. So I think, why don't we just talk about that quickly? I won't do the whole pomp and circumstance of the rhetorical situation, but we did want to kind of talk about how these are being consumed Uh, and, and in particular what Greg was talking about at the top of the show of that these aren't Bundled together. I actually had a really hard time finding them when I went to go rewatch them because, like, the algorithm algorithm had kind of recorded them as already watched, and so I had to like search for some. <laughs> I had to like search mm. for Wes Anderson in the search bar, and then they came up. Um, I will, so the- I will say, just because I I
1: didn't watch them when I, when they came out, and I was looking for them, uh, you know, recently um, after they'd been out for a little while, there is a Royal Doll collection now that was like a tile. That you, that like, mm. I, you know, is on the sort of recent things. And there's like a Halloween one, and there's uh, uh, something else, maybe like. Crown base, like something about the royalty or uh, maybe, um, but then there was Roald Dahl and it's like they did the a film version of Matilda, the musical uh, that came on Netflix as part of this deal. They had the Danny DeVito Matilda movie and then these four shorts. So there is a way to sort of look at them together, but they're, they're also not in sort of the release order. They're just jumbled in with the Matilda. So there is sort of a collection, but it's not like the West. But it's Anderson not
0: Wes Anderson. Yeah. Right. And to me, yeah. it seems it would make perfect sense to bundle these as a series and if you if you listen to the big pictures most recent episode they talked about this very briefly and they sort of implied that wes anderson didn't want them to be bundled together because then that would make it look like a tv series Mm. i don't know what they that was very much me reading kind of in between the lines of their conversation that they sort of thought that but like so what i mean what do you make of this like why do you think it's being presented this way why are they really being making almost like an effort to separate them as opposed to bundle them together?
1: Yeah, I don't um, know. I feel like, sorry, Greg. Uh,
0: I, I feel like the,
1: the reason that would make sense is like, oh, it's going to mean like more hits if they're in their own individual thing. It's going to have more, something better for the algorithm. But then if it's really hard to find, I don't know why you would do that. Like, that seems to lose the benefits of, you know it's it's four things instead of one thing that could be pushed up to the front so if that were the reason they seem to be shooting themselves in the foot with it
2: uh first shout out to the matilda musical it slaps like hard like uh, you you are not ready for it it is way better than you would expect it to be um especially the actress whose name i'm forgetting she was uh in the latest bond no no i know emma thompson uh no uh she was in the latest bond movie she was the new 007 uh and she was in the first captain marvel lashon um Uh, yes lashonda lynch Yeah, yes. she's yeah. she's Miss Honey and she's awesome. Uh, and oh, the little right, girl yeah. is great, too. But yeah, uh, don't sleep on the Matilda musical. Uh, so I added a little bit to the rhetorical situation. Um, uh, and since Jen won't play the music, there he goes. Uh, so um, when I teach rhetorical situation, I teach something that I have coined after years. I call it the big four and the little four. And so the big four are the decisions you make about what you need to write, the purpose, the audience, uh, the thesis, and the persona. You kind of set up those four things initially. And then in order to achieve that, you, do, you make uh, decisions in the little four, and the little four our medium, genre, style, and design. This is not revolutionary, but this is just my personal way to organize my lectures. And so I focus in on medium here because medium is where I think students don't often pay a lot of attention to it because it doesn't come up in the classroom that often. But I always tell them medium is the method of of transmission, right? So you have this thing that you need to say. And so the medium becomes how you say it. You want to quit your job. You can send a tasteful email. You can ask to talk to your boss in person, or you could flip the double birds and jump out the airplane door as that guy did years and years ago. Uh, I think he grabbed two beers and then he jumped out the emergency slide of his airplane. Um, so, uh, and so I was thinking about this question around that. And and I think Medium is really interesting here. So Wes Anderson created this thing, right? And he did his normal Wes Anderson thing. And it could have been transmitted to us in movie theaters. It could have been a theatrical experience, and we could have all sat and, and watched it all together, PT style, I think it's called. It's like the machete order, but now it's PT style. Um, or um, – we could have had this presented as an anthology. And that makes a lot of sense because it would further mimic the short story form, right? That short stories don't really get published on their own, sometimes in magazines, as as uh, you know, people know. But often it's like, here's a batch that uh, I've experimented with over the years, and let's put this together in some kind of anthology of a, a certain time period or a certain set of themes, and we'll call that um, an anthology. This, to me, screams make it look like an anthology right make it appear on netflix like the royal doll films of wes anderson and so the the question i think that you brought up jen in, in terms of big picture is right it's like well whose decision was this because pt's answer is kind of like it's probably netflix's decision right and i i'm i'm open to the question right like i i have no idea whether it is And so trying to understand why you would want these very separate is, is curious to me. I think to sneak in our Oscars watch, there might be eligibility things within that. I really don't know the rules around short films. Um, I know sometimes when a musician makes a music video that can count. So I assume there's ways in which you can remove something from an anthology to, to have it count. Um, or he really thinks of these as their own individual things. And as I understand it, these four stories were not in a single anthology, and the title cards at the end make it clear they were written in different periods of raw doll's career. So if this comes down to Wes Anderson's artistic vision as opposed to the needs of the algorithm, I think what he's trying to do here is kind of, Further nest them in some weird way, right? Like it's it's almost like another layer that they're all on their own, and you have to interpret these separately, even though they are so heavily related. Everything PT said earlier about how if you watch the wrong one first, you're like, "Why is Ray Fiennes here for two seconds in a weird little hut?" Um. So I'm I'm thinking a lot about that, right? And and I think that then becomes a question of you took a short story and you turned it let's just fudge the details and say you turned it into a stage production that you then turned into a short film. That is a person who's really interested in what each kind of medium Mm. can deliver for a specific theme or specific piece of content. And then to then add that on to not just a short film, you know, he premiered Henry Sugar at Venice. He presented it as just a short film, but you're fitting that into this new ecosystem of streaming and how you make these things available and how people get that content. I think it's it's kind of another way to interrogate the formalist uh, side of how this art process happens. That's my rant on Medium. Coming soon I really to my like classroom. Because then,
0: then it's like the nep. because like, then it's actually the arrangement of this and the presentation of it is saying some. It's extending the theme of the stories themselves and and Wes Anderson's sort of a formalist project to streaming. Right. It's like that's like this is a new medium. It's actually making a statement about that. I think right. Like mm. that. It, that mm. that when you put something on a streaming service, it is a different medium than if you watch it in a theater or you know, like saw it on a DVD or something like that. You know I mean, like, um, so yeah, that's, I really like it. Or, that. really or it was a
2: prestige cable show. Like, I think it is separating right. from that genre as well, Ooh. that medium as well. Sorry. <laughs>
1: I, 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 w- I will say uh, a, to, to steamroll that we will go to an Oscars watch because I, the other research I we did, will, we will. besides looking yeah. up the story is, fi- is figuring out what some of the rules are about short films. Mm. And I do think that the evolution from what, Sort of, I remember, and then from what to sort of tracking, not this isn't this part isn't deep research, it's just tracking the Wikipedia page of like how it evolved. Was that it was sort of like there's a new Wes Anderson movie that's the Henry Sugar movie, and then it was, well, it's going to be just this one short film. Actually, it's a short film with these you know, four short films, um, so there's three additional ones. It feels to me very clearly that for a while, when this was being assembled, it was going to be like French Dispatch, as we said earlier. Uh, A little collection, like one sort of hour, 30, hour, 40 minute collection of things all sort of presented as one unit. But one of the main qualifying rules for a short film is it cannot be more than 40 minutes. And The Wonderful World mm. of Henry Sugar is 37 minutes. Uh, and so it's just sort of like, okay, if this is presented on its own, this can qualify in that category, which, you know, certainly when they were making these decisions, it was like, well, both of these Wes Anderson movies are just going to cancel each other out if there's a push for, you know, feature uh, awards. So <clears throat> maybe that was the crass decision that was made. Although I like all the things that Greg was saying about the actual creative, artistic, uh, you know, craft decision of craft uh, versus crass, of uh, making this a collection of short films that sort of exist on their own, that are bite-sized things that you have to sort of do the work to link them together, uh, instead of just having it fed to you as like next episode will play
2: in five seconds
1: because you finished mm. the previous one.
2: I it didn't even suggest them to me just to pinpoint that as well. Like, you know, I finished the first one. It's like, don't you want to watch love is blind? I'm like, what A reptile? No, <laughs> like serve me the next Wes Anderson. short. A like couple if you're going to pop you.
0: up for me, but I don't okay. think it was in any, any order discernible order. It was just random. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause like, I couldn't, it couldn't just be like Wes Anderson shorts and then they're all there. Like it was like, you had to actively work hard to find them, which is, from a get get out of my Google history. Kind of my
2: sartorial choices are my own just because I search for Wes Anderson shorts. That's, <laughs> that's my business, not yours.
1: <laughs> the, the tiny house in the Netflix algorithm was like, Greg Cass, he doesn't like Wes Anderson. Let's give him something
0: else. <laughs> uh, He's a is really blind type of fella.
2: <laughs> oh, boy.
0: Um, uh-huh. The last thing I'll say with this, and then we'll, we'll move more fully into Oscar's watch that the, the PT just teased, uh, is that the other thing we haven't really talked about is that to me, a lot of these shorts, because the way that they engage with Roald Dahl, not only as an author, as portrayed by Ray Fines, but in the annotations, right, we get extra little bits of information about these stories. And usually at the end, right, but like, th- we get additional information that then recontextualizes what we've seen. And I feel like. That the choice to then have them be all separate as opposed to kind of like fluidly watch one after the other, like making it so that we all watch them all in a certain order or something like that, I think really speaks to that idea of like they're just little blips, like they're each their own kind of project. He like as opposed to kind of like this is what I have to. And so maybe he has less to say about Roald Dahl in that sense. Right. Like where it's mm. like, this is, this is not, I've chosen these four stories and here's my grand statement about Roald Dahl's contribution to literature or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. um all right. So Oscars watch, we've te- talked about it a little bit, but PT, do you want to just like, give us the lowdown on. I would love what, to. Okay. Go for it. Uh.
1: Uh, I put too much time into this instead of going to bed last night. So uh, I, will, I will. I will say this that this is all sort of uh, stemming from as we sort of just said of like th- there's this uh, speculation or sort of thought of oh well this could be you know Wes Anderson who has never won uh, an Academy Award. Uh, this I don't think he like Grand Budapest won some but he did not actually win one. Uh, just just some things for his movie. So uh you know could this be sort of the, a play that the short film he'll be aiming to do that and when we briefly touched upon it uh, back when Greg lamented we will never have an episode about it and now 2 hours later look at us now. Uh mm-hmm. but uh, but Greg was like I don't know if that ever works like th- like that never people never get a sh- uh, you know a short uh, uh live action short award at, in the middle or you know towards the end of their career like after it's gotten going, that's like a precursor maybe when they're setting it up. So I was curious about that, uh, which led me into doing way too much of a deep dive about Mm. it. So I'll try to be real brief here. Um, So uh, just because I didn't know this uh, in terms of qualifications for live action short, it's very different from, it's it's carved out as being different from the rules for feature film. Uh, One is that it must be shorter than 40 minutes. So uh, I believe the, uh, a Motivar short that is also potentially going to be nominated also is like 38, 39 minutes. Mm. Uh, it's right there pushing, pushing the limit here. Uh, there's uh, a, the qualifying period is for two years instead of one. So it's basically oh. like, uh, like, like movies uh, for this upcoming Oscars could have come out starting in October of 2022. Uh, and so, you know, it's I think because the path usually goes through a lot of festivals uh, that it takes a little while for it to start to get attention uh, and, uh, and do that. So that's, that's a thing there. There's like different little details about a qualifying run. It does have to be in a theater. It can go through a festival. It can go through a sort of student academy awards thing that uh, people can go and look up if they want to. That was too much detail for me to record. But uh, just note that I did in an Evernote file. Uh, and if anyone, uh, contact the Long Take Review uh, on Instagram or over Gmail if you want more information.
0: If you want to do a post on the long take sub stack, just about maybe, all this research that you did.
1: Maybe when we get a little bit closer to the, uh, okay. I'll, I'll dig back into this. That, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, so just in terms of, brief again, briefly the history of the award, there's been a, a, an equivalent award to this all the way back to the fifth Academy Awards in 1932. Wow. So uh, the, it had some different names. It started as best short subject comedy and best short subject novelty which from our perspective sounds very similar. Apparently novelty was like, that was the term that was being used that ended up being like documentaries and nature films uh, that didn't last very long as the term. Uh, and it sort of shifted over to just being documentary short uh, down, down the way. Uh, the first uh, short that won in the best short subject comedy was the Laurel and Hardy short, The Music Box, which anyone who's been in LA, the Music Box Steps is a the landmarked location because of, it was used in that short, uh, and is right by Laurel and Hardy Park in Silver Lake. That's some some local news. Uh, I didn't for know that. that. Uh, well, there you go. You can go and see it. It's them trying to get a piano up a long flight of stairs in Silver Lake, uh, and. I've watched it. It's pre- it's pretty funny. Uh, you know, it holds up. Good good short. Um, I haven't watched it in a long time, so I said that, and now I'm concerned there's something deeply problematic uh, somewhere in there. But my memory, when I watched it right after I moved to LA, was that it was still funny. Um, so yeah, it, it it evolved over time. There was it was one reel and two reels. There was sort of you know how actual how much film was actually used uh, separated right the categories until the mid 50s, uh, and then it just has become live action short film. Even though there's been a best documentary short since the early 40s, documentaries still dominated in this category for mm. uh, a while until the 70s. The early 70s, they were like, okay, it can't be a documentary, all right? Like you just <laughs> can't have it. And I don't, I couldn't find why. The only answer I could piece together was looking at the process now, which is that the best documentary short goes through the documentary branch of the the, the uh, as a nomination branch to get to the nominees. Uh, whereas uh, everyone in the Academy votes for live action short. So I guess everyone back in the day liked documentaries too. And so also included them uh, in, uh, in the, in the way things go. Uh, do, would either of you like to take a guess of who has won the most Oscars for uh, live action short? This seems like a, a question you shouldn't know the answer to, but then you won't be surprised when you hear what it is. I'll frame it another way. Who has won the most Academy awards? Period. Walt Disney. Oh. Walt Disney. It is Walt Disney because ah. uh, the the way that, I and up till now it still is, it's one or two people who have the most creative input to whatever is done. So there were a lot of, because of the way Walt Disney ran his company, there were a lot of things that were, you know, again, nature documentaries or random kind of you know, slice of life things made by presumably individual filmmakers, but got submitted under Walt Disney's name. So he was nominated 13 times and won six. Over the course of his life. Um, so there have been a lot of random people who have won uh, again uh, uh, as, as Gen Ts. Maybe this will become a post at some point down the road. I want to just zoom in on one year, where, uh, uh, which I think does a good job of encapsulating uh, all the sort of weirdness that can come out when you're looking back in time. Um, and in, so in 1994, the same year as Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump, uh, up in the top, um, the nominees. Uh, included uh, Joe Beth Williams, who is uh, the mom from Poltergeist, uh, who made a movie, directed a movie called a short called On Hope. Uh, Sean Astin, a Samwise Gamgee, who was an Oscar nominee for a short called Kangaroo Court. Uh, and there were two winners that year; it was a tie. Uh, one of them was a short called Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, top-notch, uh, exceptional name, uh, <laughs> won by Peter Capaldi, uh, a former Doctor Who, and star yeah. of The Thick of It, Academy doctor. Award winner. Uh, c- yes, correct. A former <laughs> star of Doctor Who, who was the Doctor. Uh, and uh, that that won in a tie with uh, a short film called Trevor, the winning producers of that, created the Trevor Project as a follow-up to this story mm. of a, 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 a gay youth. So all kinds of weird things happen in a given year. But to go back to sort of the, like, is this something that that people win in order to, like, launch a career? It's happened a few times. Uh, Taylor Hackford, who directed An Officer and a Gentleman, and Ray and a bunch of other movies, one in 1978. Uh, David Frankel, who did Dev- Devil Wears Prada and Marley and Me, not really an Academy Award, maybe level movie, but he's done a bunch of movies. One in 1996. Andrea Arnold, who did Fish Tank and American Honey, one for a short film in 2003, and Martin McDonough uh, in Bruges, Three Billboards, and Banshees of Inishirin won in 2005. So we've got some people who won beforehand, but there's only been a couple who have won uh, after, sort of after fame, uh, and the, they're not exactly like at the level of a Wes Anderson. There's a documentary filmmaker named Marshall Curry, who had been nominated for two documentary features and one documentary short before finally winning in 2019 for a live action fictional short film called The Neighbor's Window. Uh, And Terry George, who was nominated in screenwriting for In the Name of the Father and Hotel Rwanda, won uh, in 2011 for something called The Shore. So there have been nominees who were sort of post-famous, Saul Bass, Uh, after designing all the title sequences and film posters, got a bunch of nominations in short films in the late 70s, both in live action and one in uh, documentary. He actually won the documentary one. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, after Henry V, got a nomination in 1992 for Swan Song, so he'd been nominated a few times. And Alfonso Cuaron, after already winning a bunch, was nominated last year. Last year, uh, yeah. uh, La La Pupil, or La Pupil, I'm not sure. The direct pronunciation. So it's possible. I feel like it's possible... It's there's there's a little window there, and the last few years have kind of seen an uptick in maybe some like oh okay maybe it's kind of a career award for someone who's been around the block got some got some nominations uh, we can maybe give them a little something so it's possible the path's there for for West to maybe get a little something uh a, a, get a little taste get a little taste uh, of Oscar glory and I
0: feel like it would be fitting given his past history of never winning. That this would, of course, this would be... And it speaks to what we started out in the non-spoiler section of, like, maybe this is the right dose of Wes Anderson being mm-hmm. Wes Anderson. That people, if they're a little kind of like, yeah, I'm not that into it, or I don't have a lot of tolerance for it, it's, like, the perfect amount. Um, and so I wonder if that will play with the... That that will pay, that might be why he hasn't won yet. And that maybe what, what would make this a better chance for him to win. Um, but I feel like in general it sounds like this year is going to be weird because we have what PT is talking about, kind of like a less precedented or unusual pool of nominees where between Wes Anderson and Pedro Almodovar, like it's like just a lot of heavy, heavyweights in a category that never has any heavyweights usually. Um, I guess with the exception of last year, but um, just wanted to mention, because we've mentioned Pedro Almodovar short a couple of times, but if people don't know what it is, it's, ethan hawk and pedro pascal as cowboy lovers so like (laughs) you know if you're still listening to us and you're we're starting to lose you like you have that to look forward to at least Uh, (laughs) so um and apparently they're very well dressed like i've heard people gushing about the costumes in that short so like at first i think my initial reaction was like well these can't get nominated because these people are too big PT sort of gone down a rabbit hole to confirm that that's not a crazy idea um but it is going to be a weird year because it's like well obviously it's going to be hard for them in a category that already goes to the one that people have heard of the most or like the people with big names attached to it usually win the shorts categories right like if there's an obama attached as a producer like that's more likely to win or at least a lot of people theorize that uh in many years that they've had that and you know so, so it'll be interesting to see what the other nominees are in the category, which I think no one knows yet, um, what that would be, or no one has any idea what that would be. Um,
1: I do wonder if the combination of Wes Anderson, you know, well-known filmmaker with many other nominations, and the studio Netflix campaigning for this is actually going to be a negative uh, if it gets down to Wes Anderson, You know, even if it's also Pedro Almodovar. And then three up-and-comers who we don't know about. Maybe folks will be like, Well, maybe we should vote for one of these randos instead. Uh, But, you know, we don't know. I mean, again, this is a really good short. So, and maybe the fact that more people will see it because it's a famous name gives it momentum. But I think there also might be blowback to that where they'll be like, I saw that on Netflix months ago. Like, this isn't, I'm not, it doesn't need any more attention. Like, it's it's fine. Whereas this might be a leg up for someone else's career.
2: I just want to chip in. I love Wes Anderson. I really want him to have an Oscar, but... Not like this. I, I not wanted, like this. <laughs> you know, I I really would prefer. I I think I said in the lead up to Asteroid City, like the buzz was that that was his opus and it was going to be great. It wasn't great. It was good and I like it a lot, but it wasn't like among his other films, I wouldn't put that at the top. So it feels to me like we're still waiting, and and I do worry that Grand Budapest was the year he had the best shot, and now he's never going to quite hit that level again. But um, I prefer, this is just me as a guy who watches all the Oscar movies, I prefer when it's an up-and-comer. I think that's the spirit of it, right? It's like a proof of concept. I can do this. I have a good eye. I have good ideas. Give it to me. And then th- they can leverage that to get a good budget somewhere and, and get a first feature. Um I will say, again, um, I've I've watched all the shorts many years in a row now. I want to just endorse that now. Plan your February so that when they come to theaters, I always go on one night. You can go and it's usually under two hours for each of the live action and the animated. And you can see them all, um, you know, across like three hours or so. It's a great time. It's it's really fun. Or split it up into two nights. Um Almost always the one with the most famous actor wins, but it is often just one famous actor. The, the year the Riz Ahmed won, won it was like, oh, nobody I recognize ever. It like, oh, here's Riz Ahmed. Uh, the year before that was one called The Apartment, which I think had a New Yorker tie. But it was like, oh, there's the, the sister from Orange is the New Black. I know her. Let's all vote for this one. Uh, yeah. So it's it like used to not take a lot of celebrity with no offense intended to the actress who played the sister on orange is the new black, but like it used to not take much. And now it's like, I think PT asked the right question. It's like, is all of this going to just turn off the voters and they'll be like, get out of our category, big names and actors and so on. Or, you know, are they going to be wowed by the star power? You know, I just, I think it is going to be Henry Sugar. Um, and I think I I have heard nobody question that. So I assume Netflix signaled that somewhere. And maybe it was that that was the one that premiered at Venice. But um, it seems to me that, that like... Um, People are going to be wowed not just by the actors and the writing, but the the set design. Everything we talked about, right? Everything that makes it incredible makes it a really good form of the the short. And so all of that being said, if this leads to a revolution in the short form and this is perfect for streaming, right? You can it doesn't matter what the runtime is. Everybody can can throw some shorts on and different people can try it out. I think this would be great for for the just the short form, the short film art form, never mind the Oscar race.
0: Yeah, and I've heard critics complain about the proof of concept thing, to be like, "Why don't you just make a movie like that?" Like a lot of them get frustrated with the idea that we have to try out something in a sh- as a short film when really it should be a full feature. Um, and so I think it'd be interesting if like if we if this sparked a turn so that it's like short film really means a film that should be in short form and can only mm-hmm. be in like the story is best told in short in a short form as opposed to like, oh, this is a short to give you a taste and want, want a feature, um, I think that could be really cool because that would actually justify having the short film category at the Oscars more because right now it really sticks out in a way that I think, at least in the ceremony, doesn't make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, and it'll be interesting if this sort of gambit is successful for either Wes Anderson or uh, Pedro Almodovar because that isn't going to be, oh, you know, Ridley Scott's never gotten uh, an Oscar he's going to make a couple of short films next year to see if he can get his way in. Like, that's the way to do it. Like, is is that going to be good or bad? Does that mean that like people are going to want to watch 30 minute, 35 minute short films again, Are they going to get some prominence in the streaming site or is it just going to crowd people out and uh, you know, and, and maybe because of the change of technology and the change of access to, you know, you don't need to buy however many feet, you know, miles of film to make your own film. You just need like a, you know, good hard drive that, you know, yeah, go and make a full feature, full feature instead of a short film now. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it is interesting that like this could be a a pivot point for that category and what it means for uh, the industry as a whole. I shouldn't say industry for the, the, the culture of filmmaking.
0: All right. well, once again, we conjectured that this would be a shorter episode because we're talking about shorts. There was nothing short about this episode. <laughs> so we think we're gonna end here. PT where can folks find the long take review?
1: They can find us on both Instagram and threads at, at the law lo- at the long take review uh, and if they would like to contact us send us an email, uh, give us any feedback or suggestions the review at gmail.com.
0: And Greg, where can everyone find the great work that you do when you're not here?
2: I am on Instagram and uh, threads as well at Ion Cannon, E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. Uh, also Ion dot com. Also Obi-Wan Cass on Letterboxd. I'm just going to keep plugging the Letterboxd. Everybody should turn into Letterboxd bros because uh, it's fun <laughs> over there. So. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Uh, Really, when Jen said, would you like to talk about the Wes Anderson shorts? I didn't let her finish the question before I said yes and had already logged on to the Zencast. Uh, So uh, I'm glad we found time for this one Um, and uh, really looking forward to award season ahead as you plugged at the beginning of the episode. We've got some good stuff coming up.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And you can find me at Subchakchai, S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K-C-H-A-I on Instagram and Threads. And you can find me at Qui-Gon Jen on Letterboxd. Thanks, everybody. Bye, folks. Ironic, the short. It's not a short episode about shorts. (laughs) It's four things. Still not
1: the short take review. It's not the short take review. That's
0: right. We're not called the long take review for nothing. (laughs) for listening. You can follow The Long Take on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com Subscribe for free to receive reviews of films with Oscar buzz as well as new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.